Hey Balance Fam, it's your favorite podcaster Kaylee. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode. This is one of my favorites to do every year, the best of 2020. This episode is comprised of about four different episodes and I encourage you to listen to each one of them as you'll find so many gems in each one and these are my favorite moments from the show and it's great for you to catch up if you need to binge listen or it's great to introduce a new listener to the show. All right, let's hop in and get started. Hey everyone, it's your girl Kaylee. Thank you for tuning in yet again. You're in for a jam-packed episode. So kicking things off is our chat with incredibly versatile Kylie Y. Turner, a comedian, actress, writer, producer, puppeteer. She doesn't work a job, she is a job. Yes, girls. Look, Kylie, how are you? (laughs) I'm doing well, all things considered in pandemic. Thank you. (laughs) Awesome. Good to hear it. And again, just thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Awesome. So now that I've already spotted off your credential, your credentials, just tell the audience a little bit about what makes you, you. Well, I am a very charismatic, um, quirky, <laughs> the little bit of the awkward black girl in there, charismatic, quirky, adventurous, uh, mom of two crazy little boys. <laughs> awesome. Your boy, mom. We love it. Love to see it. Yep. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. So one reason I wanted to speak with you, I love seeing Black women and just women of color in comedy. So what got you started? Well, it's funny because um, I think about when I was younger and I used to like make faces and stuff like that um, and ask my friends, like, would you be my friend if I look like this? And who would have thought that that was like beginner training, you know, for everything that was going to come afterwards. So those making faces have morphed into creating characters. Um, and then I was like, I really want to learn more about this. So I joined American Candy, a sketch team, and then studied at UCB in the pit and then was just off and running from there. Awesome. Gotcha. And so for you, what would you say is the most unique thing about your comedy? Definitely that I'm a uh, bi POC, that I'm a black indigenous woman. Um, I was raised on a reservation down in Mashpee, Cape Cod, raised between there and Boston. And so I feel like it really gives me a very unique perspective, uh, number one, as a Black Indigenous woman. And everything that I tackle really has some form of race in it because that's our world, right? Like Mm -hmm. when we walk into spaces, that's what people see. So that's the world I deal in. (laughs) Exactly. And just if you don't mind, what was it like growing up on a reservation? Uh, well, as a Black Indian, it was very interesting. Uh, <laughs> I have a whole play about it called Indian Country because, uh, unfortunately, you know, Hollywood kind of tells us what Native Americans look like the same way they tell us everything, right? Like, we get a lot of our information from Hollywood, unfortunately. And so growing up down there, um, looking the way I look, not necessarily looking like a traditional Hollywood Native American, it was really hard being, you know, a woman of color, um, being told that I was, like, my hair didn't look the same as theirs, my hair didn't necessarily move, Um, I was lighter, and then darker in some instances, you know, so it was, it was um, a very layered experience, like, I I loved the culture, the tradition, but I could definitely do without the, you know, the the white imperialism. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. (laughs) Gotcha. (laughs) (laughs) overall just thinking of your work what would you say your acting project wise has been the most rewarding so far um 
a hard question because I've done a few things that I, I really enjoyed. Um, one of my most rewarding was probably when I, um, my graduate school dissertation, which was um, Fires in the Mirror by Anne Devere Smith. It was done by me, Giovanna Mundy and Deanna Suppley, and it was directed by Jessica Schechter, who was a Jewish woman. And um, Fires in the Mirror was about the riots in the 90s here in Brooklyn um, in Crown Heights between the black community and the Jewish community and was performed by three black women, directed by a Jewish woman. So that really, you know, we brought her into our world and she brought her into hers. And it, so it really opened my eyes up to like how much we have in common with Hasidic culture um, and then gave me a history of Brooklyn and the riots here. And then just, you know, twofold to 2020 and all the protests and everything mm -hmm. going on today. And even though it's not necessarily between the black and the Jews, it just shows how much history really is, re repeats itself, you know, really is cyclical. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is the truth, the unfortunate truth, but it yeah. is what it is. But no, that dissertation in that moment just sounds amazing. So just yeah. thinking more, it's about your experience and what you bring to the table. I feel like a lot of us know what the word producer is and we know that title, but I don't think we really know what's behind it. So what exactly does it mean to be a producer? Money. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's funny, but it, it actually, it does. It like, if, if you're a producer, then you're throwing money, you know, you're throwing right. money, you're, you're scheduling, you're organizing, you're, mm -hmm. you're really this whole like, one woman or one man show of putting a production together whether it's a a pilot a play a sketch you know uh, your podcast you know what i mean like you're yeah. <laughs> you're a whole team you know you're the budget you're the, you're the hr like mm -hmm. you're a producer really is all of those things well a good one anyway you know it really is all of those things or knows how to delegate all of those things to their team if you're lucky enough to have a budget where you can have a team <laughs> a production team right. um, but yeah but definitely, I want to say again, money, because like, as we all know, being creative costs money. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> ain't that the truth? <laughs> like, <laughs> truth. Oh, don't even get me started on that. So anyway. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> For just the aspiring producers out there, you want to share a few producer pro tips? Yeah, I would say don't let your fear of whatever project you want to make or your fear of maybe lack of finances, right? Or lack of budget to make whatever product you're trying to do, keep you from creating, right? Like uh, I did a workshop the other day and I think one of the best pieces of advice I got from it was just create, like dare to create and dare to create something awful. And, and that to me was like, pfft, you know what I mean? Because we all, especially as artists, you know, Erica Badu, we are sensitive about our shit. Um, you know what I mean? And, and we want people to feel and we you know what i mean like we like especially if you have like a strong message or whatever like you want you and that's what this is right that's why we're all in this business like as as vessels and to and to create um feelings in others and stuff um and so i i feel like don't be scared because even if you create something awful or if it doesn't come out exactly maybe how you saw it right you're still learning and it's a process and you're always going to be learning and so that just means all of those things that maybe didn't necessarily go the way that you wanted you learned from and now you know for the next round so just create and there's plenty of stuff out there that is trash and and it's on streaming platforms and stuff mm -hmm. so so you never know you mm -hmm. never know you know what i mean <laughs> like just create 
Yeah, no, Dare to sure. dream. Yeah, that's definitely like a good piece of advice. And I definitely think it's one that people need to hear. I mean, even for myself, sometimes I let fear of like failure of things being bad mm-hmm. stop me. And then just to your point about like things being trash on like Netflix and things of that yes. nature. Like I always think about like Michelle Obama. She talks about like how she's been at every table. She's been at in every room you can imagine. And yet there's mm-hmm. mediocre people in there all the time. So it's just yep. lesson. It's just so applicable here for sure. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And there's so many, there's so many different platforms now, you know, with YouTube, QB, Tubi, you know what I mean? Like Netflix, mm-hmm. there's some Apple TV, Disney Plus, like there's so many different platforms, you know, and, and you can do it independently. You could get backers, like just create, just mm-hmm. create. Oh, your mom over there, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a, the, you know, neighbor background the, the the beauty of brooklyn <laughs> yeah no for sure and just like for me like personally like i try not to edit as much because i want just like you said like it's okay to make mistakes like so for me like i try not to edit the show as much because i want that naturalness that authenticity and i think that's what's important in creative work as well but yeah, yeah. so just stepping off on that little tangent i went on so <laughs> as a writer just what is it like watching your pen come to life Oh my goodness, it is awe-inspiring, right? Because it's like you, it's like creating a baby almost, you know, you you birth this idea, you know, you, you put in the work, you write for however hours, minutes it takes you, and then to see it come to life, whether it's on stage or an animation, or, you know, maybe it's the monologue to your podcast or a show or something like this, it's like, you're like, I created that. Like this, this is a tangible thing now, it's live and, and people can see it. So mm-hmm. it's just amazing. <laughs> and then, of course, you have your moments where you're like, oh, man, that was, I, sh- I probably should have rewrote that or I should have. <laughs> you know, yeah, it happens. It happens. But we grow and we learn from it. So, exactly. You know, <laughs> for sure. Awesome. So just before we go, what's your favorite puppeteer moment? Dude, um, I did for Lead Soul Sisters, kind of in the beginning of quarantine, I did like a Q&A session with them. And that was really great because it was for the community. It was for girls of color um, who have, you know, some of them have been in the foster system. Um, and you know, that that's a whole nother, mm-hmm. ooh, that's a whole nother thing. Um, and so to be able to just bring some joy to them through Onika, my puppet, um, and have them be able to ask questions and her just give advice and things of that nature and how to just take care of yourself and quarantine for them. Like that was really great for me and really special. Cause I, you know, I, lo- I love my folks. I, I do it for the culture. <laughs> yes. Yes. I identify that a hundred percent. Like this show is for the culture. So no, for yes. sure. thank you for that. So before we go, I want to thank you again for joining me today. Thank you. And then also before we go to break, is there anything you want to leave the audience with? Um, yes, look out for Urban Puppets Place. Um, that is our urban puppet answer to Sesame Street, right? Because <laughs> puppets that look like us, talk like us, sound like us. Um, and it's an adult show. Um, so I would say PG 13 plus, like, you know, um, it's not for the kids. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> everybody here is college and up. So you yeah, good. Like, so maybe not have the kids watching, but um, yeah, definitely look out for that. Um, find us on IG. Um, I mean, I'm always, you can follow me on IG also, um, MDAM Starlight. I'm always creating. I'm always trying to go to the next thing. I'm actually in the process of 
redoing my pilot right now, um, rewriting that. Um, so look out for Fucked Up and Fabulous. Look out for Urban Puppets Place. And um, yeah, just, I don't know, look out for me. And if you need a comedian, like, holler at your girl. Like, I host, I do things. Like <laughs> Exactly. Like, y'all hear that? Look out for your girl. All the things she said, it will be in the episode description. So definitely check that out and definitely support. For sure. All right. Y'all stay tuned. There's just so much more in store after this break, including some tips for your job search, your job interview, and all of that. So stay tuned. And we're back. So y'all remember on Twitter when I asked if you were having a hard time finding a job or if you're looking for a new job? Well, I got something for you today. So I'm going to share some tips related to the overall job search from interviewing to your resume to just different things you need to be mindful of. So I'll go ahead and jump in to the first one. Do not be negative in your interview. And it sounds like easier said than done. Like, why would anyone be negative in an interview? But let me tell you, being negative can literally make or break your interview. It's, if you're negative, it's seen as you being unprofessional. And it can be in just some subtle ways, you know, like describing, you know, a process or system at your past job is awful, or just saying the word sternly, that can be a flag in certain contexts. And of course, words like confront, difficult, tough, boring, they have a negative connotation. So just be very mindful of your language and not sounding negative in any sort of way in reference to anything, whether it's yourself, your prior job. Like I said, it can be seen as unprofessional. Tip two, be specific. Vagueness, that's a red flag. And it makes us question your honesty and what you've really done. You should be able to fully describe all of your past roles in your resume. You should be able to give numbers and just all kinds of specifics. So just being able to describe even what your day looks like from start to finish, etc., things like that. If we walk away feeling like we learned nothing about you, you will not get hired. Tip three, personality. Let it shine through. Like, I'm not asking you to be fake, but let your personality shine through. It can be what pushes you towards the higher line. So have high energy, things of that nature. Confidence. Tip four, Michelle Obama said she's been in every major room at every major table and a lot of the people there aren't that smart at all. And I can tell you that's true. It's very true. And there's a lot of mediocre people in this world that step up to the plate. So be confident in yourself. Okay, like you got this. I know you do. Or just fake it until you make it. Like it's clear where you're not confident in an interview and that makes employers not be confident in you. My advice, listen to music to hype you up before an interview. Like that's always something that helps me. Tip number five, your resume. Make sure your resume is nice and neat. Make sure the format is the same across the board. So for example, list, if you list your employer and then like your role and then the dates you work there, keep that same format throughout. Don't have it mismatched across the board. Like for another job, don't have, you know, first the role and then the employer name and then the date. Keep it consistent if you get what I'm saying. Make sure you have those dates too, by the way, because we do want to know how long you've worked from place to place. Um, and just make sure again that it's error free. Some people are forgiving and some people are absolutely not, especially if the role requires attention to detail. So just be mindful. Also use Canva for a nice fresh look. They love seeing a resume that stands out aesthetically. If it looks the same boring as everybody else, it might not get that much attention. But if it pops, if it looks pretty or new in some way, they might look at it a little bit longer. And I don't remember the exact stat, but I can tell you like, talent acquisition people recruiters they do not spend a long time looking at resumes sometimes because we don't have all that time in the world research the company that's tip six because if you ask a question that can easily be assessed from the website it's gonna look bad also you just want to be prepared and it also looks good when you can interweave that company knowledge somehow tip seven 
again, just be prepared. Come with questions, at least three, and don't be basic with your questions. And don't include in that three questions, you know, the next steps. No, come with really fresh, great questions. Ask one that shows like your investment to the company in the role. For example, you can ask, in what ways is this company looking to elevate? Ask them, you know, what would you like to see the person in this role achieve in the first six months? Ask a scary question. And the scary question is if they have any hesitancies about your candidacy. It shows that you're open to feedback, which is a plus. People love that. And it gives you a moment to just save yourself and clear up any misconceptions or anything like that they may have about you. Tip eight, don't overshare. Again, for some is a huge thing. For some, they're more lenient. So don't mention things like maybe your depression or how much you like to eat or whatever. There's If there's a chance now to strike common ground, like if they throw that out there, then take it. But just don't tell your whole life story. Cool. Number nine, no distractions. Um, if you distract your interviewer with your background noise or people walking through, that is not a good thing. Just make sure you have no distractions going on. Don't have your phone going off in the interview. Make sure your lighting is good. Lighting is key, y'all. Make sure that half of your face is not dark, bland. Um, and just, again, that hints at professionalism and being prepared, especially if you're going to be doing a role that requires a lot of, you know, Zoom interviews with not just your colleagues, but with other people for the role. Just keep that in mind. And number 10, timeliness. Be on time and not just to your interview, but let me tell you what timeliness and, and for instance, when they send you that initial, you know, interview email, respond quickly. They actually care and track how fast you respond to that invitation email to interview. Um, another thing, if they call you, make sure you call back as fast as you can if you miss it. Because again, those type of things, they count, they matter, they take note of those things. So just be mindful of all of that. All right, so that wraps up the 10 tips that I have for you today, and I'll probably have some for you again. So just stay tuned. There's more in store in the show after the break. And we're back. So now we are joined by blogger Tay Harper. Hey, girl, welcome to the show. Hi, Tay. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Now, listeners know, they know that I love learning the root and inspiration behind everything. So what inspired your blog, Frank and Sincere? Um, I honestly, I love documentaries. I love hearing people's stories about their lives and how they overcame any type of adversities and just learning more about their experiences, but just when it comes to life in general. Gotcha. Awesome. So let's talk about TV One's Unsung because I know that also influenced your blog. So what would you say is your most favorite episode? Honestly, I don't have a favorite episode. I love them all. I literally look at an episode every morning mm -hmm. um, as a form of inspiration. So I, I just love this show. I do. <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. I totally love the show as well. And so when I was writing this question to ask you, I was trying to think to myself, what is my favorite episode? And just for me, it was hard. But I think yeah. ultimately... I think I decided on the escape episode because I didn't realize how many escape songs that I knew. Mm. So oh, you know they're supposed to have a um, versus maybe between SWV. That's an option, I think. Oh, that would be good. That would be really good. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, like, I didn't even know that. Like I just know about the verses that's coming up on Sunday with Miss Patty Labelle and Miss Gladys Knight. So Listen, I, I got tights ready. Okay. Oh yes, get a little kitten heels on, <laughs> ready to go. You know. <laughs> But no, I would love definitely to see an escape and um, SWV battle, like for real. But no, so just thank you. Um, so just take a moment and just share more info with the audience about your blog. 
Yes, so my blog is Frank and Sincere, where I converse with um, people who are just willing to share their life's journey with me. And it's focused, they have, I have different series. So, um, so far I've had the motherhood series, the fatherhood series, and then overcoming adversity when it comes to Hurricane Katrina. And people just talk about their life experiences. And my hope is that everyone's story will inspire someone. Mm-hmm. So, Absolutely. If you don't mind me asking, just tell me a little bit about the discussion and how that went for the motherhood series. So it was great. I mean, I know I have some friends who are beautiful mothers and just seeing them raise their children, like, you know, when from the time they were pregnant to their kids now and just asking them, how is motherhood? I'm not a mother and I know everyone's experiences are different. And based off of what I know about my friends, what I've seen, um, you know, I just catered the questions towards that. So for instance, one of my best friends, she has a blended family. So it was like, well, how, you know, how do you cope with that? Another one, I know that she is very strong with communication. So, you know, her teaching her children about boundaries and not being afraid to speak up for themselves. Mm-hmm. So um, the motherhood um, series was great. All of them were great. <laughs> I know, I know. Like, girl, go ahead and talk about your stuff. Plug it. Tell me about the fatherhood one. So the fatherhood was interesting because I felt like that one was, I don't know. I feel like, did I get, I think I had to hunt people down a little bit for that one, Mm -hmm. but um, it was very good. And one of the most um, heartfelt interviews I had was actually with my father and just, um, you know, just telling my father, just letting my father know, I guess it was more so about forgiveness, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, we all have in our mind, like what, how we want our parents to be this and that. And sometimes, you know, they're human. So they just don't live up to those standards or expectations that we have. So I wanted to let my father know that no matter what happened, what transpired, you know, in my childhood, I love you and I forgive you. So I think that was a huge takeaway, not only for me, but for other people, because other people told me that, you know, they went and spoke to their parents and forgave them for whatever, whatever um, transpired. So um, it was very good. Um, Another guest I had was just talking about, you know, the fighting for joint custody of his children and just knowing what some fathers had to go through in order to just remain active in their child's life. So Mm -hmm. um, it was just a very interesting take on that entire journey. Mm -hmm. No, for sure. And just two things off the top of my head. So just in relation to that dialogue in terms of with your father and just fathers out there and just those wounds, um, that conversation that was had, it just seems healing. Um, That seems like a healing moment, a healing blog moment. Mm -hmm. And just in relation to what you last said, I think that's something that we don't talk about. Um, Like you hear a lot of talk about deadbeat dads and, you know, fathers who don't want to be present, but there are fathers out there who do. And there are sometimes where women block it or other things that are blocking it. So I definitely think it's good that you put a spotlight on people or fathers out there who are actually trying to be fathers, but something's blocking it. So I appreciate that perspective. And I think that's something that, needs to be talked about more um, because, I mean, I mean, there's so many factors in that, you know what I'm saying? It could be the mother and especially the court system. I mean, 
you know, they had to go through hell and high waters just to try and get some type of visitation like that. So um, it was just, it was just very eye-opening, very intriguing. And, you know, it honestly made me want to, uh, I guess, start something else where you can help those fathers who want to be there and who are just going through hell and high water to be there for their children. Mm -hmm. Definitely. No. And I appreciate that. And I think that's why it's important. We need so many creatives out there. We need, you know, people who are doing the work to explore so many different dynamics that we don't discuss. And I know like on Twitter, there's always conversation about the movies and the TV shows that we want to see, or, you know, that, for instance, more love stories. Like when Easter Rays, the photograph came out, everybody was excited to see Black Love on the TV screen. And I think it's just very important that you do with your blog, like you just mentioned, just touching on, you know, different aspects like fatherhood and just that under talked about part where there are fathers who are out there trying but can't. So, no, definitely I appreciate your work and I can't say that enough. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Mm hmm. Totally. So I want to end this episode on a fun note. And so I'm going to set the timer for two minutes. And in <laughs> this time, we're going to try to find four things we have in common and we can go back and forth with it. Oh, shoot. Okay. <laughs> now, I've never done this before. <laughs> and everybody on the show knows I've never done this before. So we're going to see how this goes. And let's see if we can actually find four, min like four things in two minutes. Okay. Because um, it might be harder than it sounds. So we're going to see. <laughs> All right, so let me get this timer rolling and I'll kick it off. All right. Okay, the last concert I went to was a Beyonce concert. No, uh, oh Lord Jesus, who was the last concert I went to? Ooh, goodness gracious, I don't even remember, but it wasn't Beyonce, uh-uh. Okay, you throw something out there now. Oh goodness, okay. Um, the last thing I ate was, uh, Lord, what did I eat? <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a baker how about that I'm a baker are you a baker um so the last thing I ate was spaghetti so spaghetti. <laughs> traditional black milk okay let me throw something out um my favorite color to wear is yellow oh that's mine too sis all right yes we got one we got like a minute and 15 left in the okay corner. throw something out there <laughs> hey you might have to throw something out there sis I can't even think okay <laughs> okay let's see um uh, uh I like my favorite flower. Um, I have two favorite flowers, sunflower and rose. Okay, I like them too. Sunflower, that's my favorite. Boom, okay. Ooh, wait, see. I have one for you. Okay. I have not seen Lovecraft Country or Pea Valley. Oh man, you almost had me because I haven't seen Love. <laughs> I haven't seen Lovecraft Country, but I have seen Pea Valley. That's my show. But you know what? We're going to cheat this one. Okay, yeah. <laughs> we're going to give a point for the first part. Okay, <laughs> so we got one more. Let's see. Um... We got like 35 seconds on the clock. Um, let's see. What can I think of? Um, I love pasta. One of my favorite foods is lasagna. Yes, ma'am. All right, boom, we did it. Yes, ma'am. Can I just say something right quick, Kay? If you love yeah. pasta, I need you to go visit Chef Risha on Instagram. She huh? has like a skillet pasta that you, honey, you're going to love it. I'm telling you. And how do I spell like the, the like her last name, Chef? Who was? How do I spell it? It's R E S H A. Okay, boom, got it. And for all y'all out there, if you like pasta, y'all check it out too. <laughs> awesome. No, so thank you so much. That was fun. We had twenty three seconds left, so we beat the clock. So, 
Oh, yay! Yes, we did it, and it was fun. So just thank you for joining me for this episode and this super random game. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And to all the Balance fam out there, thank y'all for tuning in and joining me for this journey. As always, grow, glow, know. All right, listeners, we are about to jump into the second episode, Mashed Into This. I hope you enjoy it. And just a side note, be on the lookout for an announcement to the change in format of the show. All right, let's listen to the second bit. Hey, everybody, it's your favorite podcaster, Kaylee. As always, I appreciate you making the time to listen to the show. It really means a lot to me, and I cannot express that enough. So today, we're joined by Angelique Ambers. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. All right, so let's jump on in. You're an author. Writing and publishing a book is no small feat. What made you bite the bullet and say, hey, you know what? I'm going to go for it. I'm going to do it. So for me, what made me want to move forward with publishing this work is that I feel like it's relatable to so many different people of all different backgrounds, economic groups, races, because even um, the book really, it's about my lessons that I've learned in love through the absence of my father, and then my move towards forgiveness, and then self-love, which I think is something a lot of individuals can relate to, even if you necessarily didn't have an absent father. A lot of individuals have strained relationships with their father, which has ultimately shaped their adult relationships and not just romantic relationships, but even friendships. So I wanted to explore that further so that people could take a moment and think about what in their past has um, created these kind of conditions within themselves that, you know, flows onto their adult relationships and what can they do to move forward with maybe unlearning some of those behaviors or um, healing from some of that trauma. Absolutely. Understood. And your book is a collection of poems inspired by your journey to self-love. And the question that I have is twofold. What have you learned about self-love and what are some acts of self-love that we may not consider as such? So what I've learned about self-love is that until I fully love myself and actually learned how to love myself through my flaws and through my mistakes, I was looking to ident- find my identity through the lenses of other people. And I was also looking to um, find my self-worth through other people. And that actually created um, things that I had to unlearn, like people pleasing, because when you are so used to trying to find your identity through others, you form to be whatever you think people want you to be at the moment, when, um, you know, because you just want them to like you or you want to be accepted. So I had to realize that it actually created a lot of flaws within myself, even being timid. You know, I often... Um, even now, I'm still unlearning that behavior of holding my tongue just because I don't want to make anyone upset or I don't want people to like me less. And through self-love, I learned that when people genuinely care about you, it doesn't matter what you say or what you do. Um, they will still find a way to, you know, forgive and realize, you know, that, hey, you're only human. So I really think that self-love for me helped me realize that I don't have to be this person that other people want to be, want me to be. I can just be myself. Um, Behaviors that are self-love that people probably don't even think about are things like, you know, eating breakfast, you know, taking care of your body, making sure that you're, um, you know, 
just eating and, you know, starting your day off right, setting the tone for your day. Um, even things as simple as, and I know people don't think this, but people get to low places where they don't even take care of their hygiene or they don't do basic things. So that's something that's also self-love because when you, um, you know, wake up, you, you take care of yourself, you feel good about your appearance, you present yourself differently to the world and you carry yourself differently. Um, and then even forgiveness, forgiveness is a big one because I don't think that people necessarily think of forgiveness as self-love, but it is because you have to one, forgive others, but most importantly, you have to forgive yourself. Sometimes we get into this cycle where um, we keep replaying old situations and past mistakes. And it, it makes us think, oh, I'm not worthy of these things or these opportunities because if I wouldn't have done this in the past or if I would have done this differently, then I would be further. But just because you've made a few wrong turns, it doesn't mean that you're exempt from, you know, the best and, um, you know, a life of abundance. Absolutely. Um, you hit a lot of great points there, and I just want to touch on some of them. Um, but yeah, in terms, yeah, just thinking about how you mentioned you would sometimes bite your tongue. And there was a tweet that I saw on Twitter, and they were like, you know, something that I recently realized, I spend so much time worrying and trying to make other people feel comfortable that in the end, I'm the one left uncomfortable. And I think that's something, like you mentioned, that we need to tackle. We need to stop biting our tongue, and we need to stop holding back. Because it is, you know, at the expense of ourselves. So I definitely agree with that. And then you also mentioned, I mean, just on a related note, really, it made me think about that Khalees song, Bossy, where she was like, you don't have to like me, but you will respect me. And so that's just something else that I have thought about. Um, just a little fun moment for what you were saying. And then the last thing you were talking about, forgiving yourself. That is just so important. And just what I've learned through experiences and speaking with other people, it's just so important. And we don't realize it, but we really need to be kind to ourselves. We preach about being kind to others, but we really need to also work on also being kind to ourselves and extending grace to ourselves and stop judging ourselves because we're very harsh and often we're our own worst critics. So no, I thought she hit on a lot of great things. And I just wanted to mention a few things in addition to that. Yes, thank you. And yes, I totally agree. We have to give ourselves grace. We're so critical of ourselves of, you know, wanting to be, uh, you know, flawless, or even with having ideas of where we should be at at certain ages and points of our lives. And we just have to realize that, um, you know, life happens and circumstances change, but we have to be willing to say, you know what, um, I may have made that mistake or, you know, things didn't really go as planned, but I'm still going to keep going. And you have to forgive yourself in order to keep going. Otherwise, you'll spend so much time talking yourself out of what you really deserve. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Like, that's definitely true. Um, I've had to, like, I feel like for me, um, I've had this whole vision of what my life is going to look like. And I'm nowhere near that. Like, for me, first off, I was going to be a lawyer. I am nowhere near in the legal field. I went to law school and I was like, that's not for me. Like, that wasn't the path. I was supposed to be married at 25 and first kid by, like, 27. I turned 27. I do not have a kid right now, and I'm happy with that. Um, 
So life really doesn't follow this preconceived path that we have. And it's okay. And that something else that I want to tell people, it's okay to start over. It's okay to change paths. It's okay to shift and mold. Like you said, we're not stuck to this preconceived path. Things go as they should. And we just have to trust in that timing and just that divine nature of it all. So definitely hitting on some great things, girl. So thank you. Your work is also inspired by your journey working through your relationship with your absentee father. A goal of my show is to make everyone feel seen, heard, and connected. A lot of us have a difficult or complicated relationship with our fathers, myself included, or complicated relationships with parents in general. And just tell us a little bit about your experience. My experience was one where I really didn't have a relationship growing up with my father. And even um, now we don't really have that close relationship or um, we haven't really developed that. Um, I was raised by my grandmother and my father was in and out of jail for the majority of my life. And so he just really wasn't present for me. We never really developed that, you know, bond of even still being able to connect after the fact. Um, but at least he is aware of how I feel and that, you know, his absence did affect me. So we have at least had that conversation, which did help me a lot. Um, but as far as my relationship with my father, because he wasn't present and because I didn't actually have a father figure in my life, um, I feel like my the love that I got from men often came through romantic relationships. And so I based most of, um, you know, how men viewed me or how I thought a man should view me. I actually based a lot of that on my interactions with you know, my own boyfriends and things like that. But the issue with not having the love from my father, the issue that poured into my romantic relationships was that I found myself accepting things that I know that I didn't need to accept or that I didn't deserve because I just didn't want the person to leave or I didn't want to be alone. I wanted to feel that love from a man. So I often found myself um, being in relationships where they, they may have been abusive. I was in one abusive relationship um, for many years just because I felt like, you know, this person really loves me. He wants to know what I'm doing, where, where I'm at. And I thought that that was love because, you know, in my eyes, my father never thought about what I was doing or what was really going on with me. So that must have been what love looked like from a man. Um, and so it just caused me to continue in that relationship with it, you know, going from being controlling to then ultimately becoming uh, physically abusive. And so it, it led me kind of in that cycle of thinking, well, you know, this must be how men act because, you know, I didn't really have an ex uh, expectancy of what a man should do for me or how he should behave. Um, I just automatically assumed, you know, that he loved me so much and that's why he got upset or that's why he wanted to know what I was doing and where I was at all the time. Um, and then even with this kind of like uh, people pleasing and kind of timidness that I developed, um, even in friendships, my just always being kind of a yes woman. I always was that person that I feel like people could count on to say yes, like, oh, you know, call me at 2 a.m. and you need a ride and I'm getting out of my bed, even though I don't really feel like it, but I'm doing it because I want people to like me, you know, um, stuff like that it made me kind of develop this thing where I thought that if I said no, 
that people suddenly would just not want to be a part of my life anymore. Um, so it was just a need to be validated and needed a need to constantly be liked and accepted by other people that kind of caused me to always be that, like I said, yes woman. And it can get really draining doing that, you know, constantly bending and folding for other people until you really become exhausted. And that's the point that I got to where I just didn't want to deal with it anymore. And because of that, I then was able to move forward with um, learning to say, you know what, it's okay to say no. And I can't keep on draining myself and depleting myself in the process because I learned that when times came about where I needed people, sometimes they were there, but sometimes people told me no. And I wasn't upset with them. So I found that um, I had to raise my voice and speak out for myself and not be worried that it was going to cause people not to like me or not to want to be around me and stuff like that. So um, just really my journey with not having a father, I feel like it kind of made me um, feel like I had to do these things to be accepted because my father didn't want to be around and it must have been something that caused that. And so I didn't know if it was just like, I, in my mind, I'm thinking like, well, maybe it was my mom or maybe it was my family who was too, you know, rude or whatever the case may be. So um, it just kind of developed those things inside of me that I had to unlearn. Absolutely. And one thing I want to say, I am so glad and happy to hear that you've gotten out of that abusive relationship and that you're not forced to deal with those things anymore. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you so much. Yes, me too. And it was a journey because um, when you are in that relationship, because a lot of times and even before I had been that person that was like, oh, I would I would never let someone do that to me or um, do this or that. But it's a lot harder once you're in that situation. Um, so I'm definitely glad that I moved forward and realized one that I deserve better and that I was worthy of love. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that you highlighted that because that's the thing. People really do think like, oh, that'll never happen to me. One thing I've learned in life, don't ever assume that something cannot and will not happen to you. Mm -hmm. And you never know. You just never know. And People sometimes like to say they pray on the week. I don't think it's always they pray on the week. Like anybody can be a victim of verbal or physical or financial, or any other type of abuse. Anyone can be like, there's no, you know, they don't pick like it's, you know, I don't want anyone to feel like something's wrong with them because they've gone through that experience because that's not the mm -hmm. case at all and like you said like until you're in that position until you're in that place until you walked in those shoes you can't say what you will be what you will do and all those things so thank you for oh, putting yeah. that out absolutely yeah it's completely different when you're in a situation and I I think that's just part of human nature we are we can be judgmental sometimes and we're like oh no I would never deal with that but it's it's different when you're experiencing it so that's why I try to remember as well um that you know you never truly know what something is like until you experience it mm -hmm. absolutely and your book it's called lessons taught by daddy if you would please give the audience a sneak peek by reading two of your poems. So the book Lessons Taught by Daddy is broken into three parts. Um, the first part is more the loneliness and abandonment. Um, tonight, I'm actually, or today, I should say, sorry, I'm going to read 
um, two poems, but one is going to be from the section Letting Go, which is part two of the book. And then the last poem that I'm going to read is from the section Self-Love. So um, this one is called Screamless Windows. I love you. The words fall from your lips with ease. I force a smile, all the while remembering he left without looking back. So for that poem, um, it's part of letting go, but in that poem, it's really me um, hearing those words from uh, obviously a man that I was in a relationship with and then realizing that in hearing I love you, I always felt like you know, how you love me, but when does the love end? Like, you know, when is this person going to leave or when are they going to change? Because my dad obviously wasn't there and it, and he, he claimed to have loved me as well. So that's why um, in that piece, I just kind of explore, you know, hearing those words and just kind of thinking like, well, what does it really mean? You know? So this poem is titled Declaration. Um, and this is from the self-love portion of the book. Validation is what I sought. Weave, lashes, clothes, what I bought. Wanting to be told I'm beautiful. A mere compliment was suitable. But still my whole being craved to be loved. My emotions pushed and shoved. Depending on others' views of me. Boxed in on what I could be. Until I took a moment to decree. Opinions don't define me, that's key. For a masterpiece is just that. Even without viewers, it's a fact. I don't have to be celebrated. No need for applause to feel elevated. I took time to learn my own worth. In a sense, it was a whole rebirth. I was joyously born again, working through my hurt, my heart I did mend, finally feeling whole, even down in my soul. I could utter the words confidently. Damn, I love me. So those are those two pieces. Awesome. Thank you. I love it. I'm a huge fan of poetry, books, writing, all of that. So I love it. Thank you for sharing. Absolutely. Thank you so much for allowing me to. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to end the interview on a really fun note. So I would like to play music trivia. So I'm going to read the lyrics for three songs, and I want you to guess the song and the artist. Are you ready? Yes. All right. So song number one, here are the lyrics. Since 15 of my stilettos been strutting in this game, what's your age was the question they ask when I hit the stage. I'm a diva, best believe when you see how she getting paid. She ain't calling him to greet her. Don't need him. Her bed's made. Is it Beyonce? Mm-hmm. And the song? <laughs> uh, Beyonce Diva. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and fun fact, this is like one of my like most favorite songs by her. Like for some reason, this song just connects with me on a spiritual level. And um, another like fun, perhaps lame fact about me. Um, like I've been to three of her concerts, both of the On the Runs and um, the Formation Tour. And when she does Diva, there's just so many different parts that I do the choreography with while I'm in the stands. So um, there's a part where she said, no passengers on my plane. And she does like this plane movement. And I totally did that in the stands. And 
I just do that around the house or when I'm around family. They just know exactly what I'm doing. So I'm a huge Beyonce fan. But anyways. Oh, me too. That's why I was like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes, I am beehive all the way. Yes, I love Beyonce. She's she's queen bee for sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. So you got a point. We're going to shift to round two with the second song. All right. So here are the lyrics. Children running through the house. Sorry, children running through the house to my art all black. Ancestors on the wall. Let the ghost chit chat. Ancestors on the wall. Let the ghost chit chat. Hold my hands. We're going to pray together. Oh, goodness. Um, I honestly do not know. This is actually another Beyonce song. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is her most like I guess recent drop. Um, her song "Black Parade" that she dropped, I think around maybe oh, Juneteenth. From is it from Black is King? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. I love that song. I feel like it's underrated. So I like I'm gonna slide that in here. I choose these based off of what title recommends on my mix, and I was like, "Yep, we're gonna choose to include this one." I wanted to get no. <laughs> Awesome. And I and I loved I I probably should familiarize myself more with the just so you know if you were talking I missed like the last bits. I don't hear anything right now. Oh sorry. Um I love the visuals from Black is King. Like she went all out. It was so beautiful, like literally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I loved it as well. And I'll admit, like when the Lion King, the gift album first came out, I slept on it. I'm not even going to lie. But when she released that visual and a little bit before that, actually, I say a few months before the visual, but it was definitely cemented with the visual. I realized how beautiful that album is, how it just really speaks to your inner being as a person, as a black person. And Mm -hmm. I can go on all day, but some of my favorites that I still keep in rotation, Find Your Way Back, Already, um, Brown Skin Girl, yeah. Water, all of, like, yeah, I just love the whole album, really, but, you know, anyways. <laughs> yes, no, she's a creative genius, like, that was so beautiful. hmm absolutely. Cool. So now we will do the last round and the last song. So for this one, I'm going to give a little bit more lyrics, because this song is a little underrated, so... <laughs> Okay. All right. Other girls just can't compare. I'm highly recommended. Don't need a second opinion. You'll be all better, baby, once I'm finished. So be a good patient and be patient. Stay under my observation and holler back if you want it. I know you never had a girl quite like me. And then the second portion of lyrics, check, check, calling patient, patient, patient number one. Make sure that you sound out your number when you're done. Make sure you grab a sucker on the way out the door and make sure your next appointment and come back and get some more. Or rather, the last line is actually and make your next appointment and come back and get some more. So what's the song and who's the singer? Oh, my goodness. Is it Kelly Rowland? It is not, but the artist is actually friends with Kelly Rowland. Okay. Carrie Hilton. It is not. So I'm going to reveal. Okay. So the artist is Sierra. 
Oh my gosh. Are you kidding me? How did I not get that one? Okay. So no, it's totally, okay. This is totally understandable because this is from one of her albums that the label that she used to be signed to didn't really promote is from the fantasy ride album. And that one is so underrated. So I wanted to pull a song from there and the song is called like a surgeon. And I used to love it. And it got recommended to me on title and I fell in love all over again. And I've literally played it every day for like the last three weeks. So I wanted to show it some love on the show and show Sierra some love. Yes, I love Sierra. Um, and I definitely I'm going to listen to that song because I don't think I heard it before. It's a great song. I'm telling you, like, you'll love it. Like, it's just it's very catchy. Like, I was trying my hardest. I started reading the lyrics in like the tune and melody and beat. And I was like, no, like, I got, I'm trying to just read them. Like, I was like giving it away, but I was just like hearing it in my head. So, yeah, cool. Thank you for playing along and appearing on the show today. So much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, and I just really appreciate your time today. Absolutely. Okay, everybody, stay tuned as there is much more so after this break. We're going to discuss attachment styles and so much more. So stay tuned. Hey, everybody, we are back. I know that was a super quick break. But yeah, like I mentioned, I want to discuss attachment styles. And I don't know if I've ever discussed that on the show before. But if I have, I know it's been at a minimum level and I really want to dive into it because I feel like it relates to my life. And I know that some of you may relate as well. And it'll help you better understand yourself and maybe fix some things that are going on. So let's talk attachment styles. <laughs> so what is attachment? So attachment is a bond that we form with our first primary caregiver, usually a parent. And it's a universal human phenomenon that starts early in the womb. And the way we develop it eventually affects the way we find, keep, and end relationships. If you've noticed a pattern of unhealthy and emotionally challenging behaviors in your love life, you might benefit from digging deep and exploring the way you attach to people in intimate relationships. So that there are four types of attachment styles and people from early in life, they tend to generally keep these into their adulthood. So jumping into the first style, anxious preoccupied. So the anxious attachment style, the partner is often seen as the better half. The thought of living without the person or being alone in general causes high levels of anxiety. This type of attachment is associated with a high self, I'm sorry, with a negative self image, but also with a positive view of others. The anxious and preoccupied type of person often seeks approval, support, and responsiveness from their partner. And people with this attachment style, they value their relationships highly, but are often anxious and worried that their loved one is not as interested in the relationship as they are. A strong fear of abandonment is present, and safety is a priority. The attention, the care, and responsiveness of the partner appear to be the remedy, air quotes, for anxiety. On the other hand, the absence of support and intimacy can lead to the anxious, preoccupied type to become more clingy and demanding and preoccupied with the relationship and desperate for love. And unlike securely attached couples, people with an anxious attachment style um, tend to be desperate to form a fantasy bond. And that's something I want to look into. What is a fantasy bond? But anyways, instead of feeling real love or trust towards their partner, they often feel emotional hunger. They're frequently looking for their partner to rescue or complete them. Although they're seeking a sense of safety and security by clinging to their partner, they take actions that in fact may just push the partner away. 
And even though anxiously attached individuals act desperate or insecure, more often than not, their behavior exacerbates their own fears. When they feel unsure of their partner's feelings and unsafe in the relationship, they often become clingy, demanding, or possessive. As mentioned before, I'm pulling from two different resources here, by the way. But yeah, they may also interpret independent actions by their partner as affirmation of their fears. For example, if their partner starts socializing more with friends, they may think, see, he doesn't really love me. This means he's going to leave me. I was right not to trust him. Now, I believe in being honest and transparent on this show and in life as much as possible while also keeping some of my business to myself. Um, But I can honestly say, and it is what it is. I do have that anxious, preoccupied style, but I also kind of dip into other styles that I'll mention coming up. So shifting to the next um, attachment style, remember this four. So the second one is dismissive avoidant. People with dismissive avoidant attachment have the tendency to emotionally distance themselves from their partner. They may seek isolation and feel pseudo independent, taking on the role of parenting themselves, so to speak. They often come off as focused on themselves and may be overly attending to their crate, cre- sorry, their creature of uh, their creature comforts. The dismissing avoidant type would often perceive themselves as lone wolves, strong, independent and self-sufficient, not necessarily in terms of physical contact, but rather on an emotional level. These people have high self-esteem and a positive view of themselves. This missing avoidant type, they tend to believe that they don't have to be in a relationship to feel complete. They do not want to depend on others. They have others depend on them or they seek support and approval in social bonds. And adults with this attachment style generally avoid emotional closeness and they tend to hide and suppress their feelings when faced with a potentially emotionally dense situation. All right. The third attachment style, disorganized, fearful, avoidant. A person with a fearful avoidant attachment lives in an ambivalent state in which they are afraid of getting both too close or too distant from others. They attempt to keep their feelings at bay, but they're unable to. They can't just avoid their anxiety or run away from their feelings. Instead, they are overwhelmed by their reactions and often experience emotional storms. They tend to be mixed up or unpredictable in their moods. They see their relationships from the working model that you need to go towards others to get your needs met but if you get too close to others they'll hurt you so that's their mindset in other words the person that they want to go for for safety is the same person that they're actually frightened to be close to as a result they have no organized strategy for getting their needs met by others and as adults these individuals tend to find themselves a rocky dramatic relationships with many highs and lows they often have fears of abandonment but also struggle with being intimate They may cling to their partner when they feel rejected, then feel trapped when they are close. Oftentimes, the timing seems to be off between them and their partner. A person with fearful, um, avoided attachment may even wind up in abusive relationships. The disorganized type tends to show unstable and ambiguous behaviors in their social bonds. And for adults with this type of attachment, the partner and the relationship themselves are often the source of both desire and fear. So fearful, avoidant people who do want intimacy and closeness, but at the same time experience trouble, trusting, and depending on others. They do not regulate their emotions and avoid strong emotional attachment due to their fear of being hurt. And I just want to say I see parts of myself in that one too as well. And I'm going to tap into the secure attachment style just in a moment, but I just want you to use this 
as a starting point to learn more about these attachment styles and to just think and reflect on yourself. Um, again, self-improvement is definitely a goal and a mission of this show. And there's so many quizzes online that you can take to find out your attachment style. So anyways, jumping into the last one, so secure. When a person has a secure attachment style, they feel confident in their relationship and their partner. They feel connected, trusting, and comfortable with having independence and letting their partner have independence, even as they openly express love. They reach out for support when they need it and offer support when their partner is distressed. And this type of attachment style, it starts early in life where a child feels like their parent is a secure base. So even though they're happy to be with their mom or dad, they also feel confident enough to explore the world on their own. Kids who grow up this way when their parents themselves are securely attached people. And when they use an authoritative parenting style, meaning they're involved and firm, but also warm and allow independence. These types of things and mannerisms by parents help people and help their children become more secure as a child and as they go into their adult relationships, you know. So, yeah, the three attachment styles that I mentioned above are insecure attachment styles. They are characterized by difficulties with cultivating and maintaining healthy relationships. In contrast, a secure attachment style implies that a person is comfortable expressing emotions openly. Adults with a secure attachment style can depend on their partners and in turn, let their partners rely on them. These relationships are based on honesty, tolerance, and emotional closeness. The secure attachment style, they thrive in their relationships, but they also don't fear being on their own. They do not depend on the responsiveness or approval of their partners and tend to have a positive view of themselves or others. So that's just a little bit more about this attachment style. I hope that you found this helpful. I hope that you're learning. Um, I just wanted to bring that out there because I know it's been helpful for me in understanding myself. So I'm hoping that it'll be helpful for you all. So take a quiz, find out which one belongs to you. <laughs> Hey Balance fam, so here is the very last episode that I'm including. This is perhaps my favorite episode of all time in my two years doing the show. Alright, tune in. Hey everyone, it's Kaylee and I'd like to thank you for tuning in to another episode of the show. Today, we're joined by Kalia. How are you today? I'm doing pretty good, how are you? I'm well, as I always say, during times like this, I have my health, so I will not complain will not complain. So before we jump in, take a moment to tell the audience a little bit about you. About me. I actually hate this question, but I'm going to get it right one day because, you know, you have, this is one of those things you cannot avoid. Right. Uh, <laughs> the, I guess the main things to know about me, I currently live in Charlotte, North Carolina, um, and I'm a climate justice organizer. I've been doing this work for around three years now. We're going to talk about what climate justice means as we, you know, continue our conversation. So I'll explain that a little later, but I'm also a business owner. So I have my own consulting business where I do this work talking about climate justice, talking about race and racism. It's kind of my thing. So I was really excited when you reached out to me to have this conversation. Uh, so that's what I like to do. I'm also a mentor. I mentor high school students, college students, uh, emerging activists, anybody who's interested in, you know, wanting, having, wanting some guidance. I, I always act in that role either voluntarily or involuntarily, people just gravitate towards me and I have a problem saying no. So this is kind of how that works out. And I'm also just in general, I'm a basketball enthusiast. So I'm very sad that COVID has ruined the NBA season, um, but it has given me a new hobby and that's playing Call of Duty online. So, 
you know, learning new skills. I didn't know I could be an online gamer, but here we are. Right. No, I mean, and I'm sad too. I mean, I don't know. I just feel like this whole basketball season has been thrown off in general, first with the loss of Kobe Bryant and then, you know, with COVID. So yeah, it's a mess. No, I get it. But what drew me to you, kind of like you were saying, I gravitate towards you because you do a lot of meaningful work. And so I do want to thank you again for agreeing to appear on the show. But yes, (laughs) (laughs) thank you. (laughs) No problem. Thank you. So let's go ahead and jump right in. So what inspired you to fight personally and professionally for environmental justice? Mm, So what inspired me? It's interesting. I always tell people this work found me. Like I did not wake up and say, you know what? I'm going to be an environmental justice activist. Like that's not what happened. Uh, I was like gradually introduced to concepts around like climate science and environment. And I was interested. Well, I wasn't uninterested in it. And so as I began to learn more, it it kept kind of piquing my interest. And when I was in grad school, I was doing Teach for America. And I had that epiphany moment where I said, I don't want to teach sixth grade science. Like, that's not where I see my life going. And the first job posting I saw once I decided that was a a position working with high school students, teaching them about leadership with an environmental justice lens. And so I had the environmental justice background from like an academic standpoint. And so it was enough and I just finessed my way into that job because I quit Teach for America and didn't have a backup plan. So that's how I got into the work. But once I got into it and started understanding uh, from a human perspective what this work looks like, it really pulled on my heart and it's definitely work. Uh, I I definitely feel like I found my niche when it comes to activism because there's so many other issues like criminal justice reform, education, health, all of those other major issues, but I felt like being in the environmental justice space, there's not enough black people in this space um, when we're talking about like climate change and things like that. And so feeling like my presence was really needed uh, is what has helped me stay in this work and stay motivated to do it because it gets hard. Absolutely. I have no doubt about that. And you did make a good point that there isn't a lot of black people you know, involved in environmental justice work. And that was another thing when I was just kind of looking to see who I want on the episode. Like I saw your background and I saw that you're a black woman. So I wanted to give you the voice and let you speak on it because I feel that's very important. And I want to, you know, give dues and flowers to people who are doing the work, especially members of our community, because like you said, it's rare. So I want to, yeah. (laughs) So I want (laughs) us to lay the groundwork and discuss the environment as a whole. And so many don't really know what it is and the impact it can have, if we're being honest. So I ask you, what all encompasses global warming and climate change? That's a great question. And I think the problem with this work is, even I just did it just now, is conflating environmental justice with climate change work. I do it all the time because it's a habit, but we're also going to talk more about that. But when we're thinking about global warming and, and climate change, it affects every single thing we do. That's another reason why I do this work. It affects the type of jobs we have offered to us. It affects where people live. It affects the affordability of cities. It affects our cost of food, the cars you drive. But we don't really think about the fact that climate change impacts our daily lives because that's not the narrative that we typically hear. But overall, when we're thinking about the general science of climate change, just for those who are not as familiar, it's based on how the planet will respond to increased heat being trapped in our atmosphere. So essentially what happens is we know that the sun is what heats the earth. So basically the sun sends down its rays to the earth. 
the earth absorbs some of those rays and that keeps the planet warm so that we can, you know, live. And then the rays, the heat that we don't need, the sun, the earth reflects that back into, you know, outer space, whatever else is out there. But what's happened is human activity and the production of greenhouse gases, which is like CO2 and methane, the, those are the major ones, they've caused uh, the earth to hold in some of that heat. So it, it does not let the sun rays bounce back into the atmosphere. It keeps them on earth. And so what's happened is we've seen an increase of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere 40% since the pre-industrial times. So it's essentially we're, we're a test subject for ourselves. We're looking at how far we can push this planet. And this is science that 97% of scientists across the globe, like not just in the U.S., across the globe, 97% of scientists agree that climate change is real and that it's caused by human doing. So the fact that we in the United States are still talking about if it's real and to what extent it's real shows how much of a problem we have. And then when you asked about global warming, global warming, I had to research the difference because I used to think those two were just like one in the same. But what I actually learned is that global warming refers specifically to the recent rise in the Earth's temperature. So that's just one aspect of climate change. But that's what, you know, it was called back in like the 90s. So the, that term hasn't all the way left or been adjusted, which is why it's still used interchangeably. Right. And that's why, like I kind of wanted to kind of mention them in the same thing, but not, I don't know, anyway. Yeah, no, sure. I get it. It's, it's not the clearest subject because we're still you know, trying to get everybody on the same page. So it's helpful to be able to clarify it. Correct. And just thinking about something that you were saying about how, you know, it impacts everything we do. So could you just talk to the audience a little bit? How has the world been impacted by climate change so far? And if you could just highlight some occurrences that many may not know about. I want to move beyond, you know, what we see covered in mainstream news and just dig deeper. Sure. The question is, how deep do we want to get, right? I guess I'll, I'll start with the more basic. So we understand that climate change um, is really destroying the planet in terms of our ecosystem. So when we're thinking about animals, like mammals, fish, birds, all of those things, they're disappearing at a rate 114 times faster than they should be. So we're, we're putting, we're having animals go extinct, like they're disappearing in one human being's lifetime. I'm reading a book right now called The Sixth Extinction, and she was talking about these frogs in Panama. And apparently the frogs used to be around so much in the 80s that you would step out of your door and accidentally just step on a frog because they were everywhere. And by the time she went to visit the center in the early 2000s, there were no frogs. The, the species had gone completely extinct. So we're talking about like 20 years and seeing whole species being wiped out. Um, and so even though it, it seems like, okay, well, those are animals, we have to understand that ecosystems, those feedback loops directly impact us. It impacts our food um, and our overall planet. So that's one of the things that is lesser known. And I don't really like to focus on animals, but I just thought it was fascinating that we're losing species so fast and we don't know. The other thing and the one, the one that I really focus on is this concept of climate refugees or climate migration. And so that's just thinking about all of the people who are leaving the places that they have grown up because those places are no longer livable. And so we can look at places like Syria and other places in the Middle East where the, the weather has gotten so bad, like they already lived in like 
sometimes desert type areas, but the ecosystem's gotten so bad, they can no longer grow the same food that they used to be able to live off of for generations. And so when we're looking at all these wars and we're seeing, you know, all these people trying to flee their countries because of violence, the violence in those countries is stemming over fight for control over water and food and resources. So we have to understand, like, it's not just crazy people. It's not, you know, people just deciding to do harm to people. It's kind of like people are in survival mode. So they're taking over the resources that they can to survive. And of course, that's going to lead to fighting. We can see the same thing with COVID where people were fighting over toilet paper, but it's obviously on a much smaller scale. The other thing about climate migration is we can look at Hurricane Katrina and think about how many people never moved back to New Orleans after that hurricane. That's climate migration. It's saying that, you know what, this place is no longer safe. I don't feel like I can live my best life. Let me move somewhere else. So all across the country, we're seeing climate migration. We're looking at people moving from places like Miami to cities like Atlanta and Charlotte because their homes are being flooded out. And so instead of paying every year for, you know, renovations and protections for the home, they're just buying a property in these cities. And now these cities are booming, but now we're dealing with displacement and gentrification, which are typical issues that Black people are advocating against, but we're not making the connection between the impacts that climate change is having on our movements. Thank you for that. And I actually like that tie-in because I didn't think about that. Like you said, many don't. So thank you for that tie-in. And I think one thing that we're thinking about our climate changing and things of that nature, we think about the sea level and that it's rising. I think that's one that most people do know of and hear about. So how does that impact various major cities? Like, for example, I recently learned that Chicago is sinking and that it might be below sea level. So, yeah, how does sea level affect various cities? Well, if you're when we're looking at the projections from scientists, they're predicting by 2021, which seems far, but it's really not <laughs> like we're in the, the, the 2000s. But so in America, we don't have the same concept of time. Uh, but it's really not far off. But in 2021, cities like Miami, New Orleans, all the coastal cities essentially um, are projected to be underwater or basically uninhabitable, meaning it might not be underwater, but you're going to lose so much landmass that people are going to have to move. And so we're not talking about the fact that Miami currently spends, I think it's like $55 million on this pump system, like a drainage system. So what happens in Miami in certain parts of South Miami, I believe it is, is when it rains, the cities flood. And the city floods because not only are you getting the rain from the sky, but when it rains, the groundwater under the city bubbles back up into the city. And then you're also on the coast, so when it rains with that rising sea level, there's more water from the ocean that's coming into the seas too because the tide is higher, that water is stronger. And so essentially what Miami is spending millions and millions of dollars doing is they have these pumps that take the water that floods the streets, right? And the pumps push that water back into the ocean. <laughs> Meaning the next time it rains, they're gonna have to use those same pumps and they're it's the same process over and over and over again. So it's not an effective process. We don't have answers to this, but for whatever reason, we're still not seeing the urgency in it. So it's a very interesting position but cities like Miami, cities like New York and Chicago, they're, they're sinking and they're, they are below sea level. So as the sea continues to rise, we're going to see more people leaving and being flooded out of homes where you wouldn't really think about water going. 
uh, I can't remember the rainstorm that occurred in New York, but just I remember uh, watching a documentary and a scientist said when they were building the uh, World Trade Center Memorial, scientists told the developers, do not build in this area because if you do, if there's a really bad rainstorm, it will flood out the project. And developers said there will never be that much water that would cause this project to flood out whatever scientists, you don't know what you're talking about. And then I think it was like two or three years ago, there was a big rainstorm and it flooded out that entire project. So we're, we're, have, we're gonna be losing cities, our, our coastal communities and all of the development, the jobs, um, those are gonna leave because we're not gonna be able to live there. So we're talking about huge sources of income, like to whole economies being completely disrupted. Right now in Wilmington, North Carolina, they're literally paying to bring sand to the beach because it keeps disappearing. So people are literally, we're paying to keep our beaches um, where they are, but the reality is they're disappearing. But again, we're not addressing climate on a large scale. So all of our interventions right now, uh, you have to do them for the rest of your life in order to make a difference. And even with these interventions, people are still losing homes and, and the beaches are still eroding. So we have to do something a lot more dramatic if we wanna address this. Gotcha. And you mentioned, you know, people aren't acting with urgency or not seeing the urgency, which kind of bleeds into our next question. So some say, well, places get as cold as they usually do and as warm as they usually do. So they argue if the situation is so bleak, why aren't we seeing more noticeable extreme differences? That's what they say. So what do you say to that? <laughs> so the biggest, because I've had that question before there, and the, my first answer is there's a big difference between weather and climate. So weather is the day-to-day -day things that we're noticing right now. Like in Charlotte, it's actually a really nice day. It's on the cooler side, but I'm not going to complain because I hate the heat. Right. Uh, so <laughs> weather is what happens day-to-day. -day. When we're talking about climate, we're looking at patterns that occur over time. So overall, the earth has warmed around one degree Celsius since I think it's the fit, since the pre-industrial era. Even though one degree doesn't sound like a lot, we have to keep in mind, like, we freak out when we have a fever. And a fever is really just one or two degrees above our normal, our body temperature. And so can you imagine what it's like for a planet to be currently existing in a constant state of a fever? That's essentially what's happening. So the planet is in shock right now. And our job, my, my job is to try and help limit the shock factor as much as possible on our planet. Right now, we're on a trajectory to hit over a two degrees Celsius increase for our planet, even though the science says that we need to do our best to have it under a 1.5 degrees Celsius increase in temperature. <laughs> With our current administration, that's not going to happen. Ooh. And we just have to understand that what we're doing right now is going to impact our children and our children's children and our future generations all the way down the line. So even if we can't see it, even though I would argue <clears throat> we can see it in our day to day, this pollen has been killing me. I can't even go outside without sneezing. And then people looking at me like I'm crazy thinking I have the coronavirus. And I'm like, no, it's just the pollen, y'all. Chill. Like, <laughs> right. Right. I'm calling nobody on me. I'm good. But we're seeing large increases of pollen um, in our communities. We're, we're seeing these increases of record-breaking heats, especially when we get to the summertime. And then we're also seeing the record-breaking cold days. And so when you add those up, even though it might seem like a one-off thing, over time, 
it's a significant difference from where we were 80 years ago. Like we're talking about in our grandparents' lifetime, we've seen our, our climate change dramatically. And so I think that's something to take note of, but it's also one of those things where if you're not paying attention to the subtleties or looking at the science and the trends from like looking at how the weather is in 2020 versus how it was in 1920, yeah, you might not notice it, but that doesn't mean it's not happening. You dropped so many great things there. And I want to first talk about, I love the parallel between humans having fevers and, you know, the warming of the earth. I thought that's a great parallel and it's very timely because everybody's talking about fevers now because that's the main symptom of COVID. So great mm-hmm. parallel, parallel there and great point. And also you mentioned how people don't pay attention to the subtleties and it doesn't mean it's not there. And I've been paying attention. And one thing I always talk about with my family. So 2013, I turned 20. And I remember it was my birthday and I wanted to go out and I had this really cute outfit picked out. I wanted to wear this crop top and this short skirt, but I was just praying. I was like, can it at least be 75 degrees so I can wear it and not look crazy out here? And, mm-hmm. and so it got to like 74, but there was just enough sun, just enough warmth so I could do it and not look crazy. But meanwhile, you fast forward to my birthday last September and it's like 90 something degrees. And I'm like, there, like, I, and I noticed it from this year and the year before that, and I can see the differences. Just from 2013, hey, like, I was just praying for 75 degrees. Meanwhile, it's like 95 degrees on my birthday now. So, just, you know, a solid point, just because you may not see it, it's just you're not paying attention like you think you are because it is happening. So, very solid point. And as a fellow September baby, I feel your pain. I hate being hot. And my birthday's early September, but like you said, I remember growing up and it would be like hot enough to, you know, like have a pool party, but not hot enough to the point where I don't want to go outside. Right. For the past probably three years, I've gone, I've been wanting to go somewhere cold. Like I tried to go to the mountains last year because I'm like, it's too hot. Like this is not what I signed up for, but here we are. Right. And then you're an early September, baby. I'm a late September. I'm the 28th. It shouldn't be like this. Right. Yeah, it should be cool. So that right there, like, hello, fall. Like, what are you talking about? So, uh, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's there. People just aren't paying attention. So another thing people say, they're like, oh, it's just the way of time. The earth has been, you know, going through things like this. And they're like, well, how can we be so sure that humans are, in fact, to blame for climate change? But what's your answer? What's your response to that? So my response, this is my polite response, right, <laughs> is that I'm going to go with the science, right? If 97% of scientists across the world tell me that this is real and it's caused by human action, I'm not going to question that because I feel like at the point where we're talking about a global consensus of people in a field, I feel like that takes out a lot of skepticism around ulterior motives, who's benefiting from that, because these are people who speak different languages, who have completely different forms of economy. Like China, China's government believes in climate change even though we hold them up to be bad guys, Russia believes in climate change. Like these countries, even if they're, we're at odds with them, we can all agree on one thing. And that's that climate change is real and it's caused by human activity. Uh, The other thing, just thinking about science is that they've been able to look at the ice core records that go back at least 650,000 years, just by looking at glaciers 
um, that have been on this planet for centuries, like millennia, basically. And so they've been able to make a direct correlation between the CO2 traps and those ice caps from back at the beginning where they could first measure it in the ice caps to now. And they're seeing a direct correlation between when humans started burning fossil fuels at a massive level and the increase of greenhouse gases in our atmosphere, which layers on top of the increased heat, which layers on top of the increase in major natural, natural disaster events and the loss of animal species. So it's basically like a, a map. And from 1950 up, it's a very clear picture of at the point where we started mass producing things, our planet started going into shock. Our planet got a fever, basically. Uh, and so I just, I choose to believe that science, there are some people who don't, for the people who don't, you know, that's, that's your choice. It is what it is. I'm going to keep doing my work and hopefully you'll come along. But for those who, who believe in science and who trust science, uh, this is one of the few things that we know as human beings that's not really up for debate. So I find that very powerful, especially because human beings, we can't agree on anything. Like I can say the sky is blue and somebody else just for the sake of it will say, no, it's green. So it, it feels very promising to me that across the world we can all agree on one thing and that that's that climate change is real that's an immediate threat to human and animal society and that we have to do something about it right and then it's funny how you were saying that humans can't agree on anything that's so true i think about that dress online you know the dress like, is it <laughs> yep. black or blue or white or gold like that destroys families man because people right. can't agree on what color it is so no you definitely bring up some solid points so what are some little known things that we do that negatively impact the environment little known things so one thing that i learned recently uh is styrofoam styrofoam is so bad for the planet styrofoam literally never ever breaks down whatever chemicals it is it's used to make styrofoam it's going to stay on the planet for the rest of the planet's existence until somebody figures out a way to like decompose of it so i think about all of my cookout trays and all of my to-go trays from like anywhere i go and it's styrofoam products because they're very cheap to produce. But that's one of the most damaging things, possibly more so than plastic, just for the fact that it does not break down. Uh, so I found that really interesting. And I learned that recently uh, as one of the little things that, you know, you don't think about it. You think, you know, you're just having your convenient meal or whatever it is that's in styrofoam. But that's something that's really damaging the planet because it doesn't go away. The other thing that I was thinking about with this question is fast fashion, H&M, Forever 21, actually really any store that's in the mall, whether it's high end or not, still goes in the fast fashion category. And so thinking about the carbon footprint that it makes to produce those items. So thinking about the fact that one, America doesn't make anything anymore. We don't produce stuff in the States. So all of our clothes, most of our clothes and shoes and all that stuff, comes from overseas a lot of it comes from China and, and other Asian communities so one we're thinking about environmental justice issues because those people are working in horrible conditions um, being paid very low wages to produce quality materials so that we can get it get it for a cheaper price but the other problem with fast fashion is because it's made overseas we have to think about how much money it costs to ship those items from where they're made to every single store in the United States. Charlotte has like six malls that all have the same stores, which means they're produ producing enough items 
to fill up all of those stores. And we're just talking about Charlotte. So times that on a, a U.S. scale, because we're one of the largest consumers in the world of products, and we're creating a huge carbon footprint. We're talking about planes flying across the ocean just for clothes that we're only going to wear one time to put on Instagram. So it's really problematic. I've done my best to stop shopping at those stores, but it's hard. Like that's all that's around us. And I'm on a budget, you know, I'm a millennial. I got life <laughs> going on. Um, and the last thing I thought about was buying fruits and vegetables out of season, which I am guilty of. I do my best not to, but it's hard. But thinking about the fact that you can go into any grocery store, like Harris Teeter, Publix, Whole Foods, all of that, and get watermelon all year round, peaches, bananas, you know, pineapple, fruits go in and out of season. So the fact that we're having access to the fruits in December that aren't, we're not supposed to have till the summertime shows that we're shipping food across the country, which again goes back to putting more carbon in the air by burning the fossil fuels because that's what it costs to get those, those fruits and vegetables to, again, every single Whole Foods, every single Publix. Like, we have to think it's not just about shipping the stuff to one store. Once it comes to America, it travels all across the country to fill up every single store. Because, you know, we, the shelves got to be full. It got to be pretty. And so even though we throw away a lot of that food, just getting it there costs so much money, and it's costing the planet. So those are just some of the things we don't really think about because we don't see the direct impacts, but our planet is definitely feeling them. Thank you. You brought up a lot of points. Like I didn't think about <laughs> that. Like that one right there, I really didn't think about eating and the foods out of season and stuff like that. So no, thank you. You're mentioning great things. So I'm a science channel junkie. Of course, no matter how much I watch, I'm not going to know what you know. <laughs> but yeah, I'm a science channel junkie and I love anything that involves the earth, planets, universe as a whole, all of that. And so a few months ago, I watched a documentary and I was just in awe of some of the natural processes that Earth has to restore and balance itself out. So this kind of goes back to some things that people who do not believe in climate change and global warming hold. So they'll say, hey, you know, the Earth can recover from the environmental damage on its own. What do you say to that? It's funny. I had a, a guy say this to me because I invited him to an event I was hosting in Charlotte. This was last year. And he literally said this to me. He said, I believe in God. And I know God's not going to let this planet get destroyed. And so the planet's going to work itself out. So my first thought was, first of all, you might believe in God, but you don't read your own Bible because God didn't let this planet go underwater and didn't do nothing. You know what I mean? So like, one, it's not even a historical context for those people who rely on religion specifically um, because I know a lot of religious folks do have kind of like a, that rub, that hard time accepting climate change because it, it might somehow feel like it's going against your religion. Um, and so I just like to point out that there are religious people, leaders across this country who have their own contingency when it comes to the climate justice movement that are pleading with faith leaders and pleading with their own congregation of all denominations to help people understand that the planet is not going to heal itself if human beings do not intervene, if we do not change our actions. And so we have to understand that this situation is not going to heal itself on its own. When we're thinking about, when we're thinking about the stories that we've heard since the COVID crisis, where we heard, I think it was in Italy, where they said dolphins were now going back through the channels. 
that wasn't the planet healing itself on its own. That only happened because human beings stopped producing whatever it was they were doing that was keeping those dolphins from going down those channels. So even then, that was an intervention that we took. It's not something that would have just happened on its own. So we have to be able to hold two things up as true at the same time. So if you're a religious person, cool, you can believe that God's always going to provide or whatever you, whatever faith you believe. But we also have to understand that we can't sit around waiting for things to get better on their own. We're setting ourselves up for suffering. Um, so we just, you know, we have to be honest. And I feel like sometimes people say, oh, things will just work out on its own because they don't want to take accountability. They don't want to have to do anything or give up anything. So by pushing it off saying things will just work out, it's a way of, you know, protecting yourself from having to take action. I think COVID-19 is really just a warm up to the climate crisis if we don't act. I know that seems like kind of dark, but I truly believe that the climate crisis is here. Like it's not something that's coming. It's something that we're living through right now. Um, I'm really, really on edge around this tornado season and this hurricane season um, and thinking about all of the people who are going to be impacted by that, especially just coming off this crisis. Like think about the people who are going to go back to work once all of this is over and then their house might get flooded out or destroyed in the next tornado or hurricane and they haven't been able to work for two months. What are these people going to do? And so we have to understand that what we're experiencing right now is only going to get worse if we don't take action. Absolutely. And you make a lot of solid points. Like, I absolutely agree with you. I don't think it's dark. I think it's realistic just discussing how COVID is just kind of the start of it all. And going back to something you were saying, something folk, like say folks don't remember about God is that God helps those who help themselves. Okay, that's a yes. word. <laughs> yes, and they're missing that. They're missing that. And then it goes back to what you're saying about accountability. People don't want to take it. And that bleeds into the next question. So, you know, in our everyday lives, we come across people who refuse to be held accountable for their actions. They find ways to rationalize or divert blame to other people or other things. And so do you think that refusal to accept climate change is rooted in people's inability to accept accountability? Absolutely. One of my best friends, she says all the time, she was like, human beings, for the most part, we're incapable of self-condemning like, ourselves. And so I, every time she says it, it just like makes me think about this issue in particular, because oftentimes we have the mentality of, well, I don't want to change, you know, my personal actions, because even if I change, the people over there aren't going to do anything. So there's no point in me changing. Or they'll say, well, since they're not going to do anything, it's not fair that I have to change. So they just don't. Everybody wants to get theirs before they agree to you know, try to fix anything. And it, I, to me, it all falls back to accountability because when you're accountable, that means you have to, it requires change. It's not optional at that point. So people don't like the idea of having to give up something that they enjoy or something that's easy to them. And so they'll find ways to justify why they do it. That's, that's our human nature. We justify our actions, even if we know they're wrong a lot of times. And so we know as individuals, we know that there are things that we do that are probably hurting the planet. Like I've had to, I used to do this thing. Like I know a lot of people do it cause I see it on Twitter, like where you get home after a long day and you literally just sit in your car and let it run for 20 minutes while you scroll on Instagram or whatever. I used to do that every day, but thinking about the compound effect of me running my car that extra 20 minutes to just sit there 
multiplied by, you know, hundreds or maybe even thousands of other people doing the same thing every day, that's a lot of pollution. That's so unnecessary. So just being able to look at the little things that we're doing and say, you know what, I really could just stop doing that. Like, it's, it's really not even that deep. Uh, but we just have to get to a point where we're more selfless and we're thinking more about the greater good than our personal, like, luxuries and comfort. Absolutely. And that brings me to the question, can we recover from all the damage that's been done? Hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so my answer is yes, but I, I, I'm, a, of course, have a caveat. Right. I absolutely think we can recover, but I don't think people understand that recovery does not mean a return to normal. So we can recover. This planet can heal, but that's only going to happen if we drastically shift the way we live. We can't go back to business as usual. A lot of, you know, leaders and thought pundits are talking about this COVID crisis and they're asking the question around COVID and saying, how do we return back to life before COVID after all the things that we've, we've seen our leaders do? Like, how do we justify not giving people, you know, $15 an hour when we watched them put $1.5 trillion into the stock market and it disappeared in 15 minutes? Like, how do you justify that? How do you justify not having universal health care when we're looking at all of the money that literally in a second can be just said, you know, what, we'll, get, we'll just put a trillion dollars here. We'll put a trillion dollars there, too. Like, it, if anything, we have to understand that solving the climate crisis is expensive, but it's not about money. It's not too expensive that it's impossible it's always been a matter of political will. That's with any social movement. It's never about the money. It's never about whatever people are saying makes it impossible. It's about people having the determination and saying, you know what, this is a priority. Let's throw everything we have at it. And the reality is the longer we wait to fight the climate crisis, the more expensive it gets. I think the U.S. spent $500 billion on natural disaster efforts that happened in the U.S. last year. I, I want to say that's the number. It was like multiple billions of dollars just in mitigating natural disasters. So that's like hurricanes, tornadoes, all of those things. So just paying out insurance policies and helping people get back on their feet, that's expensive. So when Bernie Sanders came out with his climate plan, everybody said he was crazy because it was $16 trillion over seven years. It doesn't sound so crazy when we watched our government give out four million dollars in less or four trillion dollars in less than two months so again it's not about political it's not about it being impossible it's about having the will to do so but also on us as individuals we have to accept that we can't continue to keep eating fast food and wasting food we can't continue to shop at stores like forever 21 and throwing away outfits after we wear them once we can't continue to you know, have three meats with every single meal, every single day. Personally, I have people in my family love them to death, but you know, we eat meat every single day. We don't need that. Our bodies don't need that. And the reality is we've only lived like that for a fraction of our time on this earth as human beings, less than a century. So even though it feels like, oh, this is just how things are, they've only just gotten to be this way. And so it's really about returning back to old ways in terms of how we interact with our environment, the types of foods we're eating, and the things we do for enjoyment. 
A lot of people, their favorite hobby is shopping. That's why they buy so many clothes. We need to learn other things to do that don't require such um, stress on the planet, like going for walks or, I don't know, playing a sport, doing something, go outside. Uh, but we, we just have to get our minds back right and, and return to being more in tune with other people around us and then our nature. Right, absolutely. And it's funny you're mentioning that people need to learn other things to do. And I think that's why people are going stir crazy a little bit. They don't know <laughs> what else to do with their lives. They don't have those layers to them. They don't have, you know, just the desire to just go outside and just get fresh air and just chill or just find something productive to do in the house. So, right. Yeah, like they don't have that. And you just made a lot of different, you know, solid points, especially when you said, you know, to recover doesn't mean going back to normal. That is a key. That's a gem. And it just made me, you know, it's a bit of an aside, but it just made me think about the concept of forgiveness. You can forgive mm -hmm. somebody, but that doesn't mean y'all can go back <laughs> to how things were. That everything Exactly. Yeah, it doesn't mean to resume. So no, you made some solid points there. So just a question, will individual actions matter at this point? Or is the onus really on national leaders and corporations to do what is right? Because you mentioned the things that we can do, but will it really make an impact? You know, does us, can we do it? Or do we really need, you know, those big heavy leaders you know, to do it? That's a great question. My answer to that is it's a both and. Right. So I think uh, we have to, as individuals, be willing to make that mental and lifestyle adjustment to doing better by the planet. So going back to the things I've been mentioning, like we have to be willing to do those things. And we really do have to hold our corporations and our government accountable to what they're doing because industry, you know, is the, they're the leading polluters in the world. But the reality is it's about supply and demand. So we play, we are complicit in that because they're producing the pollution because they're giving us what we, we're saying we require to function. So right now, when we're thinking about the largest polluters in the world and in the country, a lot of them come from our energy companies. So I did a little research because I wasn't, I didn't know too much about Georgia, but I knew that Duke Energy, which supplies all of the energy in North Carolina, um, is the number two polluter, like of all of the industries. So number, number two polluter. They're, they're a major factor in a lot of the environmental justice and climate justice advocacy that goes on in North Carolina. They're, they're like enemy number one. So I looked up who the energy supplier was in Georgia, and it's a southern company, which has different subsidies, including Georgia Power. So right. southern company is the number three polluter. So y'all are, you know, in Georgia, you're right behind North Carolina in terms of just that impact and the amount of pollution that these industries are doing and so just understanding like in our two states we're in the top three in national if not international polluters says a lot and we have to be willing to stand up and demand that these corporations invest in technology like solar energy and really break up the monopolies that they have so that you know people can invest in things like community solar and wind and harnessing other ways to secure energy because we have the technology to adjust adjust the address the climate crisis that that's not the issue the issue is corporations are so deeply into our government they've paid for our government in such a deep way that lobbying and all of these laws and loopholes do not give access for these renewable energy companies to compete, to really 
give people an option, an alternative to where they get their energy sources from. So we have to hold Duke Energy and Southern Company accountable for the pollution that they cause. We also have to hold our government accountable for allowing these people to basically be in their pockets and in their beds so that they won't take a stand even if they know it's wrong. Right now, 45 is still refusing to accept that climate change is real. And he, um, the EPA, his EPA under his leadership just rolled back federal regulations in terms of pollution. That happened in the last two weeks. So while we're fighting a pandemic, he, that, that government, our, our leaders are still bending over to these industries that they know are harming the planet. And they're doing that because it's about money. Everything is about money and power. And so we, the first thing, you know, we have to get, he's racist, sexist, white supremacist. He's a clown, you know, like we have to get him out of office because he and his his leadership, the Republican leadership at the time, they're not willing to take a stand. And so we're up against the government just as much as we are corporations at this point. So we have to understand, like, there is a lot of work to be done. So, yes, focus on what you can do individually. But I'm going to, you know, push for also people stepping up and getting involved in advocacy because we need everyone's voices in order to really make a change. Absolutely. And you made you brought up a good point. People are saying, oh, they're not going to vote because they don't like who the Democratic nominee is presumed to be at this point and their candidate didn't win. And they think that, you know, like a vote for Biden is the same as Trump, which is definitely not true. Mm -hmm. And it's like Biden is my preferred candidate. My preferred candidate, you know, she didn't get the nomination. You know, (laughs) she didn't even win her own state. but I'm just gonna put that aside because you have to do for the greater good like you said 45 has to go like we're up against the government and we're not just up against him but like you said like all these Republicans who co-sign his foolishness no matter how deep of trouble it you know brings about so it's just very important that people vote do the right thing like i'm not here to tell people what to do and police their lives but i'm just going to give a little speech here and just tell y'all to vote <laughs> and just make sure you do the right thing you know gotta get well, if, out. if you're not gonna tell them what to do i'll tell them y'all <laughs> please vote like joe biden i can't stand him right but i'm gonna vote for him and i'm at the point like i am not going to lie when bernie sanders i think even as like early as february I had that same feeling of if Sanders doesn't win the nomination, I'm not voting Democrat. Like I had that literal thought as an activist who's on the ground every day, knowing what I'm up against. And I really just had to sit back and reflect and say, yeah, Joe's a little rough around the edges. Like he's not, like you said, my preferred candidate, but he is a significant, uh, a significantly better candidate than Trump. And so the narrative that Joe Biden is the same as Trump, we have to dispel that. We should have done a better job at dispelling that with Hillary. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of different things played into that. I did not support Hillary Clinton. I'm, I'll be very transparent. It's not something that I regret, but I think if I had the opportunity to do it over again, I would vote for her. But those narratives are so strong. And right. when you hear it over and over and over again, you start to say, yeah. That is true. You know what? They are the same. So forget it. You know, I'm opting out. But we can't just pick up our ball and go home. Not not right now. Like 2020 is the most important election year, I think, of our lifetime. 
because it's going to completely change the trajectory this, com this country goes on and it's going to completely change the trajectory this planet goes into because we're, we're up against a finite window of time to make some dramatic increases and improvements to our lifestyles in order to help keep that planet above that 1.5 degrees Celsius warming that I mentioned earlier. So to me, this, it feels like life or death. Like as dramatic as that sounds, that's how I'm treating it. So I'm going to tell the people, if you don't do nothing else, I don't care. Just go vote. We got to get him out of office and we got to get some Democrats out too. So go, go vote progressive blue as much as you possibly can. We need that. Absolutely. So y'all heard her. So <laughs> make sure you go out and vote. And though you brought up a good point about the narratives and how they can be so pervasive if you hear something over and over again. And just an aside, it made me think about Solange and she spoke about her album and the power of repetition. And I mean, mm -hmm. like, yeah, like it's very, very real. So that just made me think of that. And if we look yeah. at Donald Trump's playbook, that's how he won. He kept yes. his message simple and he said it over and over and over again. So it's not even about, is it true? It's about, is it going to resonate in your mind? If you can tell a lie a million times and after a while you start to think it's true. So we have to be careful about what narratives we're allowing to like be, we're allowed to be inundated with because those stick to us at an unconscious and subconscious level. So I, I'm doing a much stronger job of like staying away from those harmful narratives because they can get to you it, and it it's really powerful absolutely so just shifting gears a little bit so i want to take the time to dive into environmental racism but before we go there it's important <laughs> to break down key concepts so you know when there's talk of racism you see on social media buzzwords and academic jargon such as systematic systemic and structural being thrown around but i think there's a hidden number of people who don't really understand what those words mean. So in layman terms, can you explain to the audience what systematic or structural racism is? Mm, I think this is definitely the hardest question, only because yeah. you said layman terms. <laughs> so. Right, no, because I'm <laughs> academic, like sociology is my master's. So like, mm -hmm. for me, like, it's hard for me to break it down too. So no worries. <laughs> so for me, um, I'll just give a disclaimer. I also in my background have done a lot of extensive work around racial equity and, and helping people understand what is racism? What does it look like? How does it manifest in 2020? So when we're talking about structural and systemic racism, essentially what we're saying or what we're highlighting is the fact that our institutions are designed to produce racial disparities that put white people on top and black people on the bottom and other races fall in between. And so I know that sounds like kind of conspiracy-like, but when we're looking at, you can look at every major institution and institution is something like healthcare, transportation, right. uh, education, criminal justice, wealth. When we look at all the ways that we measure and track outcomes in each system we have to interact with in this country, the data shows us the same thing. White people are doing the best in this country, black people are doing the worst in this country, and everyone else is falling in between. I think the only exception really is the native population, and that's because their population is so small, they're hard to reach, they're hard to count. So, you know, oftentimes they could be below African American, they could not be, but it's just hard to know because we can't even access them, but that's a whole nother story. And so I just wanted to give a couple examples to kind of illustrate that across systems. And so I started with the obvious one, 
criminal justice. So we know that black people make up about 13% of the population, but yet we make up 40% of the prison population. And so some people will rationalize that to say, well, black people just commit crimes. That's not true. Studies have shown over and over and over again that white people and black people commit crimes at similar rates. So what that tells us that is that we have a system designed to look for crime in one community and ignore it in other communities. And that's not something we talk about, but it's the reality. Another example, and I think Serena Williams, her, her situation really highlighted this, um, or the, the possibility of this, I'll say, and that's when we talk about maternal death rates. So right now in the USA, which has in general some of the worst birth outcomes in the world, in the developed world, we're among the bottom in our birth outcomes. So that means like infant mortality and then maternal death after pregnancy. We're doing very bad. But black women are three to four times more likely to experience a pregnancy-related death than a white woman. And so some people will say, well, that's not about race. It's about class. It's about poverty. That's why, you know, these women are dying. But the research shows us that white women with GEDs and high school diplomas have better birth outcomes than black women with advanced degrees. So we're talking about masters, JDs, doctors, famous professional athletes like Serena Williams. White women with GEDs have better birth outcomes than Serena Williams. That should give us a reason to pause. And then the last example is in our education system. So we know about uh, some of the traditional education, educational issues, but did y'all know that for the 2011 to 2012 school year, black kids made up 18% of preschoolers in the country, the entire country, but across the country, they made up 48% of pre-K students with multiple out-of-school suspensions. So that means that our babies, three, four, five-year-olds are being, make up almost 50% of multiple out-of-school suspensions in preschool. We gotta, we gotta, someone explain that to me. That goes to show that it's not just about individual acts of meanness, it's about systems. Because we're talking about across the country, these things, we're seeing all of these things. So it, oftentimes we focus on racism being about that white person who calls you the N-word, who has the Confederate flag hanging up on his trailer park, you know. That's, that, that's not what is really hurting us. Because racism does not require ill intent. It doesn't require hatred. Racism really thrives on our complicity and our being collective, black, white, all of our complicity and our willingness to continue doing business as usual. It also thrives on our lack of historical context on the history of race and why it was created in the first place. Because the story of race is the story of labor. So if we don't understand why race was created and how racism came to be, we're not gonna be able to comprehend how COVID-19 is producing racial disparities, which is what people are trying to figure out now. Absolutely. And so there were so many things that popped up into my head while you were talking and you were speaking like medical racism, very real, very structural, things of that nature, like black people, even down to black kids who, as we should know by now, aren't seen as innocent. They're not given, you know, the same amount of pain medication that a mm -hmm. white kid or a white woman would be given because, you know, there's this perception, this racist perception that black people can just handle pain better. They don't need, you know, the mm -hmm. same level of medication. 
And then, like you were hinting at, the school to prison pipeline. And again, structural, that's on purpose, that's intentional, that's built in racism. Like, right. One of my classes, we were talking about um, how this, like, around about five years, like you were saying, got arrested and suspended for throwing a paper ball. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, like, as I'm saying, so many things fall up in my head. And you, like you said, when you're being complicit, like, you're just okaying this. Like, you can't be complicit in any of it. Right. And the reality, it, two more things just based off of what you said. Right. The first thing it made me think about is racism. Having a racist idea is not something that solely belongs to white people. Mm-hmm. Meaning, we black folk also have racist ideas that we need to unpack. We have some internalized inferiority that we need to check. Cause sometimes we'll justify, oh yeah, you know, they, you know, they need to clean up that neighborhood. Gentrification can be a good thing. It gets all the crime out. Not understanding why those communities look like that in the first place. We oftentimes blame people for their poverty and don't look at the structural things that have been put in place for them to end up in those situations. We struggle with that balance between personal responsibility and acknowledging the systemic barriers that people have. And the easy way out is to say, well, if I made it, you can too. And if you didn't, it's because of poor choices. So you deserve whatever happens to you. So that's just one, that's like my personal soapbox. And the other thing when it comes to racism that I feel like we don't talk about enough is that racism is also, just like it's a system of oppression, it is very much a system of advantage. So oftentimes when we talk about racism, we're only talking about, oh, look at those poor black and brown folks. Somebody go help them. And then somebody starts a nonprofit to help the poor black folks. What we don't spend enough time doing is looking at those situations that people find themselves in and ask the question, who is benefiting right now for these people being in the situation? We can look at payday loans and, you know, the subprime loan industry, all of these corporations, all of these industries are built off the backs of poor people, particularly poor black people. I'm a social worker by profession. My whole job is built around helping poor people. Mm -hmm. If there weren't poor people, I wouldn't have a job. So we also have to understand that just as much as we focus on the oppression, we need to focus on looking at who is advantaged by this oppression and start trying to deconstruct that. It's not, it can't just be about fixing black people and helping brown people it also has to be about breaking down those systems that benefit from having broken people in the first place mm-hmm. absolutely and just again more thoughts just pop up into my head but no like that's why in sociology we try to differentiate between prejudice and racism the ism being the structural tie and mm-hmm. like people can have those racist thoughts and that's not just limited to you know white people it is you know black people and Latinos, Latinx, however you want to go by others, Asians, like you can have those prejudicial thoughts. And that's what we call those, like the thoughts and things of that. We call that prejudice. And that exists everywhere. Yeah. And like you were saying, there's a lot of anti-blackness that's internalized within us. And sometimes yeah. we don't even realize it. And then when you're talking about advantage, it made me think about one of my classes where we talked about how racism came to be. Like, and she asked what came first, the thought or the action. But I won't even get into yep. that whole malaise. But one, <laughs> one thing she did point out in terms of advantage was, um, I believe she kind of tied it to Bacon's Rebellion around that time period. So black and white 
um, individuals in the country, they were working side by side um, during that time. And they had teamed up to rebel against, you know, the person who had power, the wealthier white person. And then that's when the whole thing of racism came to be. They kind of planted those mm-hmm. seeds and put that out there. So then... You know, the whites who were on the same tier, I guess, class-wise, you could say, with black people started to turn. And that way, the white was able to keep their power and keep their advantage. And, I mean, we see that now, like, poor whites who were, you know, class-wise on par, you know, with black people, they'll prefer policies and things that they yep. hurt them. But because they want to choose, you know, racism and whiteness first, that they don't realize what they're doing to themselves. So. It was just absolutely yeah, and it made me think about that whole thing with the advantage and where it come from, where it came to be. So sixteen forty yeah. Bacon's Rebellion that that changed the game. The yes. one of my um, mentors and just a woman I admire, she runs the Racial Equity Institute, and she says that Bacon's Rebellion and what happened to um, John Punch, who was the African who ran with the two uh, men who came to be known as white. She said that situation was the first known um, sentencing disparity because, yeah. you know, we know that the African slave got perpetual servitude, AKA slavery and the white indentured service got an additional seven years. So like you said, that's, that's the, the point where mm-hmm. you really see a division between race just based off the color of your skin. So it's unfortunate, but like you said, even to this day, white people will go against their own self-interest because they will rather align with their whiteness than with their actual needs. Absolutely, absolutely. So let's just kind of shift it back because we were we just going and just you yeah, know that's another that's another episode. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But no, everything we said was just so important and need to be said. So just kind of shifting back. So statistics show that people of color and the economically disadvantaged, which of course poor people, they reside in the most polluted areas. This, of course, is not an accident. It's an example of structural violence and structural racism. So let's talk about the Black and Latino communities first. So could you share with the audience more information on environmental racism and how it impacts us? Sure. Environmental racism. So this term really came about in like the 1980s. So fun fact, the environmental justice movement is considered to be founded in eastern North Carolina. So for anybody listening to North Carolina, you know, we can pat ourselves on the back for something. Because, uh, you know, the South, we don't we do not do too many things right the first time around. <laughs> but um, so this term environmental racism really refers to how physical environments have been manipulated to negatively impact black and brown folks. So oftentimes um, it can look like different industries and companies coming in to produce whatever it is they're trying to do, knowing that it's going to have um, like a byproduct. So in North Carolina, actually, and across the country, we have communities living near uh, coal fire plants. So all of our energy providers, we run off of fossil fuels. So you have to burn coal in order to get energy. And so when you burn coal, the ashes are carcinogens. They're highly toxic. And these ashes have to be stored somewhere. So in North Carolina, they were storing these ashes in, in low rural black and brown and poor white communities and so these these ashes were contaminating people's wells uh that when the wind blows the ash blows up so rates of asthma and other respiratory issues are dramatically increased and they go to these communities because they feel like no one's going to put up a fight especially in black and brown communities they feel like no one cares 
Also, you have people living in harmful, near harmful industries like the hog farming industry, which is huge in North Carolina. Um, you have black and brown farmers who can't even go outside because the farms uh, where the hogs are kept, they have these huge like sprinkler systems almost. And you hear stories about people walking out of their homes to like go to church and the farmers of those hog industries are spraying the feces and urine from those thousands of hogs and they spray it in the air and it travels so far that it might land on your Sunday's best outfit. Like these are real life stories that people are experiencing. There's other industries like industries that create wood pellets. And so they come and they chop down trees in the U.S. and it's, a lot of it's happening in the southeastern part of the state. So they'll chop down the trees and turn them into pellets and then they ship them overseas to places like England so that England has cleaner energy. But in the meantime, those when you're chopping down trees all day, a lot of times it's again rural areas and a lot of black communities who are dealing with all of the dust that comes from those wood pellets. So again, asthma, respiratory issues, all types of things are happening and it's in the same communities. We also have to just think historically about where and how neighborhoods were built for black, black folks in particular. So my complaint right now, like to, right now I'm about to write a Facebook rant about it and tag the city of Charlotte. Right. They, decided, they decided that they're going to close down the parks for access by car, meaning you cannot drive your car if you want to go to a park, even if you still plan on social distancing. You have to be able to walk or ride your bike to get to that park. On its face, cool. It's a great policy. I understand completely why they have it. But when we don't take into account history and how the city was designed, what has now been created is Black people don't have access to parks right now. A lot of them, if they're living in historically Black neighborhoods. Because we know that where these historically Black um, neighborhoods were created, they were redlined. So those neighborhoods didn't get parks. They didn't get bike lanes. And so now you got white folks who are the main ones not social distancing with all of this access to the park because they can walk. And you got Black folks who don't have access because those parks are, are too far to walk or ride a bike and definitely ride a bike safely. You know, we're struggling for sidewalks, let alone bike lanes. And right. so it's just little things like that. Those are environmental justice issues. It's known that in areas where there are communities with more trees, the air quality is better. So again, in Charlotte, the, wet, the historic west side of Charlotte, which is predominantly black, there are higher rates of asthma. And that's also because when those communities were designed, they didn't put nice big oak trees in those neighborhoods, they put projects there. They put small homes there on top of each other. And so we have to be able to look from a historical context and say, how does this system that was designed in the 1930s, how is that impacting me today? And right now, we're seeing that Black people are disproportionately getting the COVID-19 virus and dying from it. And they're dying from it because they had other issues beforehand. And a lot of them had to do with asthma. And so all of these dots connect, but we have to be able to draw a line from one to the other. Also thinking about Katrina, the community that was flooded out, those black people didn't just happen to all live below the sea level in the bowl. That's where they were put. Those were the only neighborhoods where they were allowed to live at that time. And so we have to understand there is always a racial context to whatever is going on in society, even if it's not explicit. 
thank you. And gosh, you just said so much there. And now I want to kind of shift the focus to the Native American community. And as you were kind of hinting at earlier, they're often overlooked. So thinking of them, what are some specific ways in which they are affected or exposed to environmental racism? I mean, we can start at day one. Right, right. <laughs> Literally, um, we have to acknowledge the fact that their land was stolen from them. And not only was it stolen from them, they watched European settlers not only take their land, and they proceeded to destroy it. Um, the U.S. entered over 370 official treaties with Native tribes in this country. And the U.S. government broke every single treaty with every single one so when we're talking about environmental racism it really truly does start with the native community we can look to more modern times and look at how you know we know that native communities have been so-called offered lands on this country that they can call their own and form sovereign nations those lands have typically been barren um, they have not been able to to live the way that they lived for centuries before europeans got there um, there's instances where the U.S. government built dams that blocked the water from coming naturally into those native reservation land. So at that point, you basically stripped that whole community of their right to live because you took their water from them. So now they depend on the U.S. government for the water. And if you can't grow crops, now you're depending on the U.S. government to supply you with food, too. So they've just built that state of dependency, and that's all based around the physical environment. And more recently, we can look to all of the major pipeline projects going on in the country. So we can think about Standing Rock and how much effort it took for them to stop those efforts. In North Carolina, the, the Atlantic Coast Pipeline is something that people have been fighting for years now. And it's interesting, if anybody's familiar with, with North Carolina, the Raleigh-Durham was the original route that that pipeline was supposed to go to. Raleigh-Durham is a major part, it's one of the, the two of the largest cities in the state with a lot of prominent universities, a lot of rich white folks. That's the, you know, the best way I can say it. Right. And so that was the original course of the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. And over time, actually very quickly, those plans changed from going through Raleigh-Durham to going through Eastern North Carolina, literally going through the entire native lands of the state. So that's not a coincidence. Those are just um, things that we have to understand. People are literally making the conscious decision to harm certain communities in order to save other ones. So there is a direct priority being given to urban, you know, professional white folks that is not extended to rural and black and brown and especially not indigenous people. So they're fighting, we're fighting against the Atlantic Coast Pipeline right now. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. Sorry, I just get so frustrated when we talk about these things. And that's why there's a need for environmental justice. So can you just, you know, explain a little bit about it and what's being done to remedy the injustice that we see? Sure. So like I said, the environmental justice movement really kicked off in yeah. the 1980s in eastern North Carolina. But really the first environmental justice, I'd say, effort was the 1968 sanitation workers strike, the strike that Martin Luther King attended and where he gave his last speech before he was assassinated. So environmental justice has always been a part of our movements. It just hasn't been as explicit. 
And so I, I realized I kind of misspoke when I said that Black people aren't as involved in environmental justice. It's not that they aren't as involved. It's that they do not get the acknowledgement for their efforts. Because we don't use the same language, because we just incorporate it into our other organizing work, it kind of gets diminished. And so what's happened is Black people and Brown people and Indigenous people, the work that we've been doing to protect our physical spaces and our communities has been overlooked and overshadowed. So now when we're looking at the current climate movement, you might look at it and say, oh, that's a white people issue. No, Black people have, and Brown people and especially Indigenous people have been warning us about what we're doing to this planet since we got to these lands. So it's not new. Um, but right now what's being done is there's communities and organizations across the country, but especially in the Southeast United States, who've been organizing for decades, going up against corporations and government entities themselves. In North Carolina, the community recently won a settlement against Duke Energy. It's taken years, but Duke Energy has been forced to clean up a coal ash spill from 2014 that dumped over 80 million tons of coal ash into one of the rivers in North Carolina. And so they fought it and fought it and fought it, but we had community members from across the state who are willing to take off from their jobs, who are willing to drive three hours to go to Raleigh to advocate for why they feel like it was Duke Energy's responsibility to clean it up, which is absurd that we have to even do that, but we did it and we've won. And so just understanding like, the environmental justice movement, it's not as sexy because that work often takes a really long time. And the process is not as um, high profile. It's like when we're talking about criminal justice reform and we're talking about getting someone off of death row, like it's some, it's a tangible thing you can see right then and there. Like you can see that person and see how your efforts help them. When we're talking about the planet, um, it's a lot, it takes a lot longer to see those changes. So it took years before the water um, in the Dan River was like the, it's still not completely clean, but it takes a long time for those things to go back to normal. It takes a lot to even clean up that mess. And so, you know, our patience, our attention span sometimes does not allow us to really give the environmental justice and climate justice movement the flowers that it deserves. Because again, it's just not, uh, it's just not as quick a process. Absolutely. And we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but let's dig in a little bit more. So how can we, the individual person, get involved? First one, vote. Yes. Please vote. Say that. And, and don't, I'm about to get on another soapbox, don't just vote with whatever popular Black uh, caucus is in your community. So here in Charlotte, we have a very prominent group and they produce, you know, like the voting cards during election time where it says, here's all the people you vote for, for everybody who's running. I would advocate for actually researching the candidates they're recommending because just because a group of people agree on one thing doesn't make it the right decision. And so there are, sometimes our Democrats are letting us down. They're not as progressive as they need to be. So we're putting Democrats in office and they're like, well, I mean, Pollution is bad, but do we really want to tax corporations? You know what I mean? So we also have to be mindful of who we're voting for. And just because they're blue doesn't mean that they're with you. The other thing I'll say, and this goes with any issues, just doing, being willing to at least be more curious about the issue. Go do more research. Go watch some documentaries. There's environmental justice and climate justice documentaries on Netflix, on Amazon Prime, you know, free resources or stuff you're already paying for. So just you know, watch it. Go look at Vox. They make really good, like, short videos 
around these issues. So go just, you know, we don't got nothing to do right now. So go, you know, get some education. It won't kill you. And then I actually um, looked up some organizations. So I know you're in Georgia and there's two groups that I've worked with specifically in Georgia. And one is called the Partnership for Southern Equity. They do a lot of different work, but one of their focuses is on clean energy and advocating, advocating for progressive climate-focused policy. So they're a group. And then another group that's specifically going at their southern company and like the G Georgia power industry is called Georgia Wand, W-A-N-D. So if you're in the Georgia area, there are local organizations run by black women, like by us, for us, who are doing this work, who really need your help. So just being willing to get out there and say, hey, I'm new to this, but I want to help. What can I do? And I promise you, you'll get plugged in real quick. Absolutely. So before we go, is there anything you want to leave the listeners with? I feel like we talked so much and we had <laughs> so much good stuff to say, but is there anything else you want to leave them with? Um, anything else? I think one thing I'll say since we talked about the conversation of racism earlier because um, the question always comes up, can black people be racist? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the short answer to that is yes, but not to white people. <laughs> so black people cannot be racist towards white people because like we said, it's a system based on power and advantage that black people just don't have. We can Correct. be prejudiced, we can discriminate, but we cannot impact the overall population of white people, no matter how much we hate them, if that's how you feel. We being y'all, I'm, I'm not saying that, right? but just that disclaimer. But again, going back to that anti-blackness, black people are in positions, if you're a black person in a position of power and you have anti-blackness built within you, which we all do to varying degrees, but you act on that anti-blackness when it comes to implementing policies, because the system is already designed to reduce racial inequities, by you carrying out those policies with a system backing you, you can be a black person who is an anti-black racist. So there, that's that on that. If you don't like it, talk to Dr. Ibram Kendi. He said it. Those are his words. And I think he laid out a pretty convincing case. Uh, so go get at him if you don't like that. Also, a quick plug. Um, me and my students made a short 23-minute documentary that talks about climate justice, environmental justice, and racism and how they all connect. It's on YouTube. And it's called Hashtag Black Summer 19. So if you're interested in learning more about this issue and you want to hear it told by us and for us in a way that I think was pretty fun, um, go check out the documentaries on YouTube. Again, hashtag Black Summer 19. All right, that's a wrap. I want to thank you for appearing on the show today. I feel like I learned a lot and I think we had a great, and I mean great conversation. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'll come back anytime. Hopefully, you know, your listeners don't get too angry with me. They'll be all right. They'll be fine. No, I really feel like they will love it. I feel like they will love it. All right, y'all. Stay tuned. There's so much more in store after this break. All right, everyone. We're back. And I really hope you enjoyed the interview that we just had. It was perhaps one of my favorite um, interviews that I've conducted during this show. And it's been going for two years now. So anyways, we're going to round out the show with discussion about hot topics. So... 
bad baby or however you want to pronounce her name you know cash me outside girl she was basically black fishing on the internet and i'm not going to give her too much energy i'm not going to give her too much time because that's not what you can do that's not what you're supposed to do people like that you call them out and you keep it moving don't give them all the energy and attention that they want let them wither without the attention so all i'm gonna say is in part this monster was created by social media and you know people co-signed it even black people they listen to her music different things they co-signed it and here we are so all i have to say about this is watch what you do watch what you hype watch what energy you let get put into the world watch what energy you yourself put out into the world so then young jeezy is engaged to genie from the real talk show and i mean that's none of my business and I'm going to only fight for those who want to fight for me. But what I just want to say is that if you don't know, there was a whole moment on the show where she talked about, you know, how the white man, that's who she wants to marry. That's who she, you know, is the main side for her. But black men, she said, that's something that you have on the side, the little tree on the side. And, you know, that's that's a fetish. It's not cool. But if that's what he wants to do, that's what he wants to be around, that's his business. I'm just here to call it out, call it like I see it, and say that's not a cool thing, that's not good. And, I mean, if people aren't here for their relationship because of that, rightfully so. So, also this week was the whole idea of Karen being a slur. And I'm trying to think carefully how I want to phrase this. Is it being used in a slur-like manner? Sure. I mean, just like Boomer is being used in a slur-like manner. But are those phrases, are they slurs? No. There's one slur I can think of, and that's the N-word. One that should only be said by black people and people of African descent, African Americans, things of that nature. That's one that you have to say N-word for. That's one where you have to put asterisks or all kinds of things to blur it out. Karen is a name. Karen is a name that can be said out loud, spelled out loud, written on your test, all of those things. Boomer, it is a categorization. It can be said fully. It can be read fully. It can be written down on a piece of paper by anyone. Do I think that it's right for people to necessarily create their own version i don't even like to use the word slur but is it there is it right for them to kind of use those words in a derogatory manner like things are to us i'm not one of those tit for tat people so in the spirit of energy and karma i mean i would say no but at the same time the whole problem with this is when those phrases like okay boomer and karen are being used it's being used in a sense not to degrade and I think that's the key difference here. It is not being used to degrade. It is being used to call attention to problematic actions on their part. And I think that's the real issue here. They don't want to deal with anything that makes them see how they can be a problem. They don't want to have to have that level of self-reflection or have something, you know, kind of mirror. Like, here's a mirror. You see it, you know, to you. They don't want that. They don't want to have to have that accountability. That's the problem here. That's the real issue. Moving on, Tracy Morgan, he had that accident involving a Walmart truck driver and he made millions from it and made a whole joke about it on SNL last year when Eddie Murphy returned to host for the first time in like 30 years or so. So anyway, he recently said that, you know, we shouldn't be so hard on Trump and how he's handling and managing this crisis. 
Like I said on social media, this is why I named one of my episodes Speak Wisely because that's what you have to do. Do not speak with nothing behind what you're saying. It has come out in the news that him, other Republicans, they knew of this disease and the this virus sorry i need to correct that this virus but they knew of it they knew the effects that it could have on the united states and they kept quiet for their financial pockets or for their gain in various other ways and even now that it's known it's still not being handled right mandatory restrictions aren't put in place and just other things that can help you know testing providing free testing let's add that in there making sure that people have access to get treatment whether they're insured or not making sure that treatment is free really or at least affordable for everyone of every class that's not being done so yes we're gonna rightly criticize and i'm not here to placate or be nice to trump that's not what i'm here for that's not what anybody should be here for these are lives at stake these are lives that are endangered okay so no i'm not here for it but my thing is i'm not here I'm not going to be a person who tells people to stay in their lane. I'm just going to tell people to speak with something behind them. Because I'm not going to sit here and be like that person that told LeBron to just shut up and dribble or tell people to stick to jokes. I'm not going to do that. Just speak with knowledge. Do not speak without knowledge. Because when you're speaking out without knowledge, you're speaking out dangerously and ignorantly. And And honestly, this is all coming from a place of privilege on his behalf, which I'm not cool with. Moving forward. So here's what we not going to do. We are not going to let comments like by Vulture calling Usher or referencing Usher as a hustler's extra. This man gave us confessions. This man gave us my way. This man gave us 8701. He gave us climax. We're going to get to that in a minute. He's giving us hit after hit after hit. He had people singing about signing divorce papers. Okay. We're not going to disrespect this man like that. And before I jump into it, I saw someone on a forum say, and I thought it was an interesting point, that they'll erase your legacy if you let them. And so they were saying in defense of Nikki, they understand why she touts her accomplishments so much. And I mean, that makes sense. Solid point. I guess you have to keep it up. But, you know, in order for people to not, you know, try to erase or tarnish your legacy. But anyway, well, I don't want to get into that right now. Just the point I wanted to mention. But anyway, The Weeknd said that Usher was biting off of him and his style and copying him with Climax. No, sir. He's a legend with range. You are not. You are nothing of the sort. You do not have the range. Like I said, this man has been in the game flexing different muscles, perhaps even longer than you've been abusing drugs, if you want to be real with it. And I mean, we're not going to front here. This is real talk. Everybody knows he said himself that he abuses drugs, okay? So we're not going to go there. But yeah, so let's not, sir. Let's not. And I want people to respect and put respect on Usher's name. He is a legend. He is an OG. Chris Brown, that's his son. If you want to talk Nicki language, that's his son. Trey Songs, you know, have son. I don't want to give Trey Songs too much credit, but he did have some top tier albums. The Weeknd is not even a play cousin. Okay, no one matches him like that. So we're not gonna we're not gonna do this. We're not gonna disrespect him, and no one minus Diplo, but we don't care about him. Who worked on that song? Who wrote on that song? agrees with this nature they say that they weren't inspired by the weekend in any way shape or form so i just want to say to weekend this ain't what you want bruh this is not it this is not the hill to die on this is not a hill to lie on this is not a hill that you even want to climb up to sit down sit down now speaking of chris brown and it's going to wrap that up 
he was liking a page that was created long ago to stand for him when he was with Karuchi. And he commented on it like, damn, all wistful like. And I just have a few thoughts. One, like this girl has a restraining out order out on you. Now, I know it doesn't apply to the stand page, but still, it's like, let that woman go. But this is a classic, you know, move of abusers to let you know, hey, I'm still watching, you know, trying to assert some kind of control, even if it doesn't make sense, even if it's stupid or twisted or whatever. But I also think in part, he really is obsessed with her. Like, I don't like. It's been years, yo. Like, and Rihanna don't have hard feelings towards you like Karuchi does, but he's, and I don't know, maybe that's part of it, but he wouldn't, he wasn't doing all this with Rihanna, and especially for not for this long, like he's doing with Karuchi, and I don't know what to say with that is, because I don't even know Chris Brown's capable of love, maybe for his kids, but that's about it. So anyways, this wraps up this week's episode. I would like to thank our guests, and I would like to thank you for tuning in. I just want to encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe. And for my soap opera fans, don't think I've forgotten about you. I'm actually going to put out a bonus episode for you guys. And I'm probably going to drop it on Sunday. So stay tuned to the podcast page and I'll let you guys know. But yeah, haven't forgot about y'all. All right, so I will see y'all next week. And you know what it is. Grow, glow, know. Bye, y'all.